If you just want to be a visual artist and put your work in galleries and have that kind of art life and you want to work in that space, you can do whatever you want. But to be in an entertainment world where your livelihood depends on how people respond to your work, I think as much as it, it um, can be hurtful <laughs> to read people's comments on your work, I mean, I get all, stuff all over the place. There's a famous YouTube video of somebody ripping up my work and burning it because they hate it so much. But then when I started doing more painted work and more expressionist work, it was getting more shares. It was going on Bloody Disgusting. It was being shared by Fangoria. It was being shared by, you know, Dread Central. And uh, you would start reading the comments and people were buying it. People were this and that. And I'm like, okay, well, if this is what people like, then I'm, I'm going to be more mindful of painting in that style and developing it in that direction, right? Yeah, you're, you keep one ear on what people like and the other on what makes you happy as well. And when you can marry those together, that's, I think, when you've kind of found your, your niche and your specialty. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. There are few things in popular culture more iconic than the movie poster. Movie posters have become more than just a way to advertise the titular film, but a form of art all on their own. Think of some of your favorite genre posters, and chances are some of them aren't even for your favorite films. Whether it's Stephen Frankfurt's chilling poster for Rosemary's Baby or Drew Struzan's classic for John Carpenter's The Thing, the posters for these movies have become as integral in popular culture as the films themselves. The 90s saw a glutton of photoshopped movie star face posters, and for a while it looked like the art of the movie poster had lost out to the marketing departments. Boy, has that changed. The horror movie poster is back, and it's back with a vengeance. The last two decades have seen the rise of the more painterly quality of the classic posters and the decline of the photoshopped floating heads, though occasionally terrible photoshopped posters have their own merits. There are many great artists leading the charge, and for today's episode, I am joined by the virtuosic Matthew Tarion. From his stunning take on classic films like Halloween and Friday the 13th to his beloved poster for Psycho Goreman, Matthew doesn't stop. He's a tireless creating machine, and when you look at the quality of the work he's doing, it's hard to imagine when he has time to do things like sleep or eat or watch the movies that he does paintings of. Once you get to know Matthew and you find that he's also a devoted family man and a caring friend, well, how can you not be cheering for this guy? One of the genre's most talented artists also happens to be one of its loveliest people. Matthew and I talk about his influences, his technique, and how to decide what to distill about a movie when you're creating a poster. You may recognize Matthew's work from other segments on the show, and Matthew himself as he has had other guest appearances on Spill Your Guts. This interview is how Matthew and I got to know each other, and since then we have become friends and collaborators. I hope you enjoy getting to know him nearly as well as I have. Well, no doubt you're already surrounded by some of your favorite horror posters. So let's get into the art of getting spines to tingle and gooses to bump using a paintbrush with Matthew Tarion. Matt, what's up, man? Hey, not too much. Well, I'm noticing the art behind you, like 
that Evil Dead poster, who signed that? There's something someone signed that I can see. Yeah, that was uh Robert Kirkman or uh, Kurtzman who signed that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And that's your work, so, the Evil Dead one. The Evil Dead one is. Yeah, that was uh, I think back in 2014. Um, I was again just kind of uh, beginning my art career at that point, and uh, I was invited by. I believe it was called Garth Manor. They were doing um, a series of screenings and they had one at the uh, Alamo Draft House and they were looking for an artist. Um, and yeah, I thought, I mean, I'm a big Evil Dead 2 fan. So it was kind of a cool project to, to do at the very beginning. And you said the reanimator one was Gary Poland's piece? It's Gary, yeah. Yeah, I always loved it. I mean, just the, the two color. It's awesome. It's just very high contrast and very cool. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And a pretty excellent movie at that amazing movie love it yeah 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 i'll have to um it was funny because when we have you know different guests on actors and filmmakers and stuff i try to like you know use something from one of their films wherever possible but i kind of had a mandate when we started the podcast that it would be you know alternatives to the theatrical posters which because i just feel like you know it's a lot of those posters as great as they're like they're pretty oversaturated at this point like everybody's seen them a billion times Mm -hmm. um and not that that's, you know, familiarity is not a bad thing with your favorite movies and such, but I just wanted to sort of give people something different and uh, and also have a chance to, like, for people to experience artists' work that they might not have seen. So, like, you know, um, I which was kind of like how I, I think was a way I sort of stumbled upon your work. But I remember, like, on Facebook, you and I have a lot of similar friends, familiar friends on Facebook. Like right, a lot, right. we do. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> and I kept seeing different filmmakers that are friends of mine's posters, and they, I was like, who's doing all these kick-ass, you know, painterly <laughs> Drew Struessen style posters? Like, uh, which is kind of definitely where, for me as a as a, a film buff, like those are the posters I like. Um, and that was, and I think it was uh, Psycho Goreman. I remember watching that, and I was like, okay, this this poster is definitely the same guy who did all those other ones like for jesse cook's movie and i was like i need to look up who this person is and i think i just messaged steve kostansky and was like who did the psycho gorman poster and he directed me to you and that's how i found your and started geeking out over your work which is behind me here for people who are watching this on youtube or not just listening to the podcast typical on the show i start start right at the beginning so let's let's go there let's kind of let's talk about like where did you grow up where did you start? Yeah, sort of- um, so I, I was I was born in Toronto, um, and Toronto, my yeah. yeah yeah my my dad was finishing up his doctorate in philosophy, and my mom was doing her masters in horror film criticism. Are you uh, serious? That's what I, your mom took in school. That's what she took. That in psychology. That's so awesome. So I was I was born yeah at that time they were they were finishing up their degrees. Uh, we didn't uh, they didn't stick around Toronto for very long. Um, they moved a couple hours uh, away into um, a small town called Crystal Beach, and Crystal Beach. I don't know if you've if you've heard of it. It's right along Lake Erie, and for a long time it was kind of. Uh, the cool place to go um, because there was a carnival, there was a famous roller coaster and a Ferris wheel. And, and actually it was, it was sort of um, um, a big spot for big bands to show up in like the, you know, fifties and sixties. The funny part was, was that I think it was either the year that we moved there or the year prior, the carnival shut down. 
And so for me, my childhood growing up there was very much like um, like a Stephen King novel. In the shadow was, of a dead carnival. It, you would look around and, you know, it wasn't like a creepy ghost town, but it was there wasn't the tourism that it used to right. have, right? So you would go into the downtown core. There would actually be the creepy abandoned roller disco building. And there would be a big plot of empty land where there was, you know, a, a roller coaster and stuff like that. So, you know, for somebody who came to the genre fairly early and loved horror, it was a it was a good place to grow up. And I kind of divided my time between there and my grandparents' uh, house. They lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're talking, you know, pitch dark at nighttime, not even streetlights uh, in the road. Uh, there was no neighboring properties except for a graveyard. And it was very much like the uh, the farm from, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead. And so <laughs> for me growing up uh, as as a horror fan, I would always borrow my my grandfather's camera and, you know, sort of coerce my younger cousins to be in these mini horror films that I'd be, you know, filming all the time. But um, yeah, so that was that was kind of the the childhood experience. Um, you know, I I grew up having art in my family. My grandpa was a painter. Um, he was sort of a European trained landscape painter. So he was, you know, very traditional. His work is absolutely gorgeous. Um, uh, and so having art in the family was kind of normalized, you know, he taught me how to paint when I was quite young. Um, but in terms of art, like as a career, uh, I didn't think that I would go down that path. Um, the thing that I always wanted to be was a filmmaker. I loved film. I, lo I idolized Wes Craven and, and John Carpenter. I, I wanted to be those guys when I grew up. But again, being in a small town, which was also like, you know, predominantly a blue collar town as well. I didn't have the friends or the, the, the hookups in that industry to even think it was possible, you know, to go into the film industry. I just didn't know how you, how you do it. Um, but I was also uh, a classical piano player, and I had been going through all of my my repertoire and my grades and going through the whole conservatory program. And when it came time after high school to sort of figure out where to go, I wound up taking classical piano. And so I wound up doing four years of, of piano and composition um, and getting a degree in that instead of <laughs> instead of film. Um, but it was funny because like the year before university, so when I was, you know, 18, I made one short film just to kind of test myself to see if I could do it. And I made like a, a 20 minute experimental short and I entered it into, um, there was sort of an international festival that was hosted at the university, uh, close to where I grew up. And, um, it won, it won best experimental film. And so I was like, well, maybe I really do want to, you know, go into film. Maybe I should try and, and pursue this. But again, I just, I didn't know where to go or who to talk to or what, what, you know, steps to take. So, um, I took music and after I graduated, I spent, uh, all my time working as a musician. I was teaching at three different studios. I was a, uh, a church organist, a music director. I went back and worked in the music department at the local university. And it was my entire life. I played in a cover band, uh, another original band. We recorded a couple albums and, you know, it was, it was entirely music all the time. Um, right. So, yeah. So the, the art thing uh, didn't really kick off until I was 25. And um, my girlfriend at the time 
uh, actually worked in the film industry. She worked in casting. And that was my first connection to somebody who actually was in the industry that I wanted to be in. What was that? You talked about how you had a short that you did that, uh, experimental yeah. short that what, what, tell me about that short. Yeah, the short, uh, it, it was called, uh, the man who lived in Leeds. It was based on a poem in that old collection of, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the poem itself is just kind of weird imagery. You know, the poem doesn't really make sense. And and I, I remember always just kind of being fascinated by it. And at that time, I was really big into, you know, David Lynch and Cronenberg. And I thought, well, I don't need to tell a linear, you know, the film. I don't need, it doesn't have to have a narrative. It can just be, you know, cobbled together, weird, you know, cool effects and cool stuff. And so I filmed it over the course of a couple of years and did the music and edited and you know, it was one of those kind of embarrassing shorts where it's like you do absolutely everything in the whole production. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I got my dad to kind of act in it. Uh, it was a non-speaking role. So he just kind of had to go and walk in particular places and whatever. But um, yeah, entered it into the festival. I was shocked that it even got um, screened. I brought my family um, to the uh, to the like award ceremony. And, and when it won, I was just yeah, I was over the moon. I mean, it was, it felt, it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was doing the thing that I always wanted to be doing, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it sounds like, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people about the sort of the beginnings of, you know, their love of just art in general, but specifically the genre and stuff, it's kind of easier to see where it might've come from with you than it is with mm. most people. Cause it sounds like it's very entrenched in your family. Like your, your folks sound like they're creative people. They are. Yeah. They're, they're creative. They're smart people. I mean, my dad, uh, he, he writes even now and he was always kind of working on a novel or a screenplay or, or, you know, things like that. And, and for me, I feel like, uh, growing up when I did and with the parents I did, um, it definitely helped because, you know, my, my mom gave me a copy of Sid Field's, you know, screenwriting book, you know, so I could start learning formatting and, and having the internet being what it was at that time, you could go online and get, you know, Carpenter's shooting script for Halloween. So you could learn, you could kind of put yourself through film school at home. You know what I mean? If, if you loved it, the resources were there, um, which is kind of what I did, even though I didn't think I would ever, you know, be involved in that industry. I just loved it so much. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a strange time. So after after all of the the music and everything, I wound up moving back to Toronto with my girlfriend at the time. And that big move into Toronto, to me, felt like kind of a new beginning. You know what I mean? I could have, I didn't have the contacts that I had. It was It was kind of like starting from scratch. And I thought, well, I can either do all the music again and sort of get another career in that, or I can try and, you know, do do something else and um uh, i just thought you know i'd i'd, I'd always love to i always wanted to try and give art a chance you know because I'd, I'd always been drawing just as sort of as a hobby um but i thought you know we'll see how it goes you you your background as a pianist like did, did yeah. that make you at some point think that maybe you might want to be a, a film composer was that something you had in mind at, at a certain i mean i know you've done some work as a composer but yeah. it doesn't seem like it's by any stretch sort of your focus as a as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's not, which is interesting. Uh, you're right. You would think that it would have been. Um, and I, I have scored. Uh, I scored a feature a few years back and uh, a handful of shorts. And I'm always willing to do it. Like, I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, in fact, I, the 
the one feature that I did, we would uh, go and do, they were doing the mixing, I think, at Urban Post uh, in, in Toronto. And while we were doing that, I think they were also mixing um, that Johnny Depp film, uh, Black Mass. I think it was oh, called yeah. Black Mass. So it was yeah. just, it was, it was interesting to kind of, again, be in sort of the heart of film production, you know, and it felt yeah. like that. And, and every time those moments in life happen, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is really what I want. I love the energy and I love the collaborative nature of what's going on. And it just feels, you feel very energized by it, you know? What um, was the name of the feature that you scored? Uh, it was called Let's Rap, um, okay. but uh, which is funny because when I was first approached, I was like, well, if it's about rap music, I feel very like not prepared oh, that's to what tackle. It's, about? it's not. It's not. It's, oh, okay. it's more of like a talk show type thing of, of two okay. people kind of rapping back and forth. Gotcha. But I was like, initially, I was like, I don't know if I'm your guy to be, you know, <laughs> doing a rap <laughs> score for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but no, no, yeah. it, it wasn't that at all. But, um, but no, it wasn't a genre film. It wasn't. It was a comedy um, that okay. had uh, Jason Priestley in it, and it was uh, it was an interesting, interesting uh, project to to have as my first feature to score. I always think of you know it's funny you're telling that story, and I think of um, when I was uh, I did a, a feature called Off Season, and it was like a slasher film, um, yeah. and I uh, we made the thing for I don't know twenty thousand dollars. It was a okay. feature. Like, yeah, and it was, yeah. we shot, it was all outside, like a woodsy style slash room. So we shot mostly in Algonquin Park, which is not easy to do. So we had to like sneak in and get what we needed and get the hell out because you, <laughs> you'd need a lot of permissions to shoot there. But it's so beautiful there that like, we were like, we need to, you know, we shot in Gravenhurst for some of it. Like oh, I love Gravenhurst. Yeah. yeah. Love driving through there. Yeah. Yeah. Our producer had a, uh, one of our producers owned a cottage out there. So we, oh, we cool. would get up in the morning and then just turn away from the cottage and it looked like we were in the middle of the woods because we were and we'd shoot right. stuff there but to get all the like really great kind of wides we went to Algonquin where you have these beautiful vistas and stuff but anyway like we shot this movie and um it turned out really well like way better than we thought it would because mm -hmm. I think we, going into it was one of those projects you're doing where you're like you know we don't know what we'll do with this. We might play some festivals. Maybe we'll get on the, like a little boutique distribution label, something like that. Uh, but we made it again yeah, for 20 grand. Like that's, you know, nothing. Um, mm. But when I finished the movie, it was right around then that I started to work with Romero. And George was like, well, I want to see it. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not, no, no, no. Because <laughs> like, I was terrified that he would like see it and think like that was, you know, and I was like, George, I made this thing for like $20,000. And he was like, I don't care. Like, uh, you think I've never seen like really micro budget movies? You should see my first films. Like, come on, let me see it. And I was so in a terrified way, I show him the movie and he really liked it. And he was like, cool, well, I'm going to cool. put you in touch with my visual effects guys so you can kind of spice up some of this, these VFX shots you've got. Because that was the only weakness was, we didn't have the budget for good VFX, like for gore enhancement stuff. The gore right. makeup stuff was great, but we wanted to enhance it and we'd have the budget for that. So he puts us in touch with this company called Spin. I didn't know how big they were. Uh, so I go in for the first session. They've got it loaded to their system. And the guy who's doing is finishing up this shot on something. And he's like, one second. I was like, what is that? He's like, oh, it's this Max Payne movie. And I was like, oh. I love that they're doing this big budget Mark Wahlberg movie at the same time that they're doing my $20,000 movie. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's just cool to be, to, to have those overlap, you know what I mean? To yeah. kind of feed off that energy and, and really feel like you're, you know, yeah, the budgets are different, but you're still a part of the same industry. 100%. And that was kind of like the lesson 
that I learned there too was like, you know, you take a movie like Evil Dead's a good example. That movie was made for peanuts. But for my money, it's a lot more fun than some of the big budget studio horror films that we've seen. You know what I mean? Totally. Budget yeah. is not indicative of the enjoyment level of a film. And it's true. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. I think we've kind of learned that, particularly in this day and age, we're like, you know, I find going to the theater now in particular where everything in the box office is these huge movies and that kind of middle ground is that well middle and below is just gone in theaters um it can be a bit fatiguing sometimes i want something a little less bombastic do you ever kind of get that vibe when you go to the movies now i do and i i really miss the uh the 90 minute film i feel like now with the with the budget and the talent and like i mean you know particularly you know your blockbuster movies your marvel movies which hey they all look great. They're all a lot of fun, but they're all like four hours long, you know? know. And, then, and then they come out with the director's cut with like the extended versions and the deleted, you know, whatever. And you, you, it's crazy. I mean, but I get yeah. it. I get it. It's just, it always feels weird to me because you have, you know, some filmmakers that just want to make a straightforward film and they fight really hard for a meager budget. You know what I mean? And they yeah. know exactly what they want to film. They're not going to go overboard. They have a shooting schedule and everything's kind of planned out and it's such a, a battle. And then you've got these enormous movies where the the extra reshoot day is probably 10 times the budget that indie films have for the entire thing. You know what I mean? Like there's just yeah. so much excess of like money and and whatever and, and the amount that they shoot. It's, it's crazy. But uh, yeah, I do. I like, I, I'm somebody that loves like, independent art films right like i mm-hmm. i like weird you know random stuff that's shot for nothing um but i do love blockbusters too i mean for me it's just you know does it does it have heart you know is it well written does are the yeah. performances good um you know does it speak to me yeah. yeah it's i mean i think it's interesting too when i think of like you know i you hear people talking about how young people have no attention span and you know all they watch is tiktoks and, da, 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 da. Yeah, and i'm like yeah. that's not true they're watching three hour captain america movies like I know. yeah because <laughs> like, yeah. 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 to me that goes against the logic of if you think of when we were the age of you know i think and i mostly think i know marvel movies are for everyone but you know when i was eight to 15 is when i would have probably really been invested in those films sure and, yeah and I think that's kind of the audience base that most of those movies really plays to. I Again, I know everybody can enjoy them and does, but I'm just saying, like, mm-hmm. that was when I liked superhero stuff the most. And um, and at, at that point, for guys like you and I, because we're about the same age, like, mm-hmm. the prevailing theory in Hollywood was, like, if you're making your movie for kids, don't go over 90 minutes. They don't want to sit there for... Somewhere along the way, that got jettisoned. Yeah, yeah. And and even in terms of like the age demographic, like, you know, I, I love comics. I know you love comics as well. Um, I love superheroes. I grew up with the, the 90s, you know, Spider-Man cartoon, Batman cartoon and everything. I think the issue is you hit that point somewhere in your 30s where your own body starts to hurt. And your aspirations of becoming a superhero become dashed immediately. You're like, I will just never become Batman. And so your interests kind of shift. You know what I mean? You're you're yeah. no longer watching that and being like, I could do that. You're watching that and being like, yeah, I've not, it's not me anymore. You know? No, I mean, I think that's a really good point, too. It's like when you get to that point in your life where you make 
sort of obligatory sounds just by to pick something up and you go you know that noise of of like uh when you're playing doom or duke nukem and you try to you try to open a door that's locked and he just makes that that like uh, that grunting noise when that yeah. becomes your normal of just like right. sitting down or standing up that's or right. living you know that yeah you're no longer a superhero and i think the thing that's funny about that too is like i remember i think it was ricky gervais was talking about like he doesn't understand why he makes that noise because he's like i don't it doesn't make me feel better and nothing even hurt to begin with i just right. do it i don't know why it started i don't right. know when really but it's just a thing i do and it's not like he has, he's like, I didn't have back pain or something, but I picked something up and I, it, something in me goes, go. Ugh. Yeah. And I was like, it's a good point. Cause I don't, I'm not a person who suffers from a back injury or anything, but when I pick something up, no matter what now, I, there's a sound, there's a sound well, effect. That comes which is funny because like, I, I don't know, every, every now and then I'll get on kind of a, a fitness kick and I'll go to the gym and I'll start lifting, you know, weights again. I'm not a guy that like makes like a big grunting noise or any noise while I'm lifting, you know, heavy, heavy well, weights. Well, that shit's insane sometimes. That's part of why I like, don't go to gyms. I get really intimidated by those guys who are like, ah, I'm like, yeah, I, I will make a noise like lifting my coffee cup. I'll be like, oh, you know, but I lift, you know, a 40 pound weight. It's like, you know, you just do it. It's weird. I don't know the yeah. psychology behind it, but yeah, I'm yeah. the same way. You know, I'll commit to the gym for a good day or two and then, sure. you know, it's back to this is a lot of work. I don't want to lift. Well, you shit. watch the Avengers and you come out, you're like, I could be Chris, you know, Evans. And then you remind yourself that, no, it can't. And then you get rid of the gym membership. I also That's- remind <laughs> myself that he gets paid a lot of money to look like that. No right. one is paying me that yeah. money to do that. Fair. So for me, you know, the thing that I'm going to get paid money for has nothing to do with abs. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, everybody can appreciate a good set of abs. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's funny too because I was I was noticing uh, I've had different guests on the show recently when we were talking about you know there's a recurring theme of noticing in horror that kind of male gaze being subverted to more of the female or the gay male gaze in horror films lately where you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot more you know kind of hunky guy nudity than you are the girls and I think that's kind yeah. of I'm kind of enjoying that recent change because it's <laughs> like well you know even though I wasn't a gay person I would still look at it and be like come on like there's it's, we've had how many years now of obligatory just on you know just unbridled excessive women male gazy stuff like it's true yeah to the point where i mean the balance just a little bit yeah yeah i i know there i mean the, <laughs> the pendulum is is definitely swinging uh for sure um and it's interesting too to, to look at like those movies from like the especially like the grindhouse films right and like that that is an era of filmmaking i i really don't i don't believe could occur again no, today in this climate i mean there yeah. is a lot of and and there should be there's a lot more awareness and a lot more questions being asked of the content that we look at um which you know i don't think existed uh 30 30 years ago for sure so it uh it's it's an interesting time right now yeah i saw i, I won't say who it was but but a particularly well-known kind of film writer who's tries to i think tries to kind of aim for that controversy thing was posting about how you know kind of the anti-woke thing of like you can't say this stuff in movies anymore now everybody flips out movies are, right. don't take chances anymore and he was talking about a particular exploitation movie that that uh had sort of a, a nasty streak through it of of homophobia and he was mm. just like kind of going on about how you know you wouldn't get away with that now and, and i was like some things are an improvement. I think yeah. that is an improvement. To take mean-spiritedness out of our horror films, 
I don't have a problem with that. I don't. If we can get rid of homophobia and racism and bigotry and chauvinism, and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. That's you know what I mean. And so the idea of kind of oh the woke police, I'm like let's kind of not generalize all sensitivity as a bad wokiness and kind of identify when it's okay to go. Well, we've learned that that kind of thing is hurtful to people. And since, to me, I think the first job of a horror movie is to entertain. I think horror can do a lot of things. We can learn from it and, you know, da, da, da. there's a lot of stuff. But uh, I never aim, at least in my work, like, I don't want to hurt. I don't want anyone to walk out of one of my films and feel offended. That would yeah, upset me if, that, sure. if my work had that impact on someone. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you, know? you know, horror has always been kind of a reflection of, the uh, the anxieties, the, the the things going on in society at the time, things that are important to people. And they've always been an exploration of that and kind of, yeah, in, in you can have, you know, gore and, and blood flying. But at the core of it, you know, which is why my mom had a, the, was doing her, her horror film criticism uh, degree. But like, there is a lot there to explore and to understand about what we as a society are dealing with at a particular time, right? And the fact that horror films now have a little bit more substance to them, and I think that when they're written, they become an exploration and a way for writers to tackle some of the issues, and not in a very, like, in-your-face kind of way. Uh, And I I feel like that is important, and that's what makes horror such a, a fun and important genre as well, is, yeah, you can walk out and be entertained, but if you want to take that extra time to kind of peel the onion back and look at what the writer is trying to get at and what the film is trying to to tell you, there's always a lot to be discussed and a lot that you can yeah. take away from a genre that is typically or, or has a history of being so easily dismissed and swept under the rug. Well, I think, you know, the nuance of, of horror that, that other genres are not necessarily afforded is uh, the ability to kind of on the on a surface level come across as just your entertainment you know exactly. monsters and pretty girls or pretty boys and there you know there's the tropes that everyone knows and loves but then you can you can scratch a little below the surface and see that a filmmaker might be using that in a way to say something unique or i think a good example you know is people talk a lot about people like jordan peele of course mm-hmm. and as they should mm-hmm. i saw a great quote from jordan peele recently where someone said that uh something along the lines of that they thought he was the best working horror filmmaker. And he was like, that's very nice of you, but I won't tolerate that kind of talk because we all know that that's John Carpenter. <laughs> I saw that. I know. I showed it to my wife. I was like, hey, it's great. That That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Which is like, I love Jordan Peele and I think he's fantastic. And I think his career is going to be exceptional. And he's, he's made three movies. So I haven't seen Nope yet. It looks amazing. It does. Yeah. His I wanna, previous I two films were incredible. Yeah. It looks yeah. great. I mean, uh, but I love that that sort of, I think horror fans like Jordan Peele, they've gone and become filmmakers really are wonderful at kind of acknowledging their masters of the genre and kind of going, you know, whoa, like let's push the gas yeah. or their brakes a little here. Like that, you know, let's not John Carpenter, you know, those guys like there's, they're so influential. And one of the things that comes up on the show is I've asked uh, quite a few different people who they sort of see as being the new masters of horror, you know what I mean? Because guys like John, mm-hmm. and quite a few of them are gone. They're no longer, Wes is gone, you know, Toby Hooper is gone, Stuart Gordon's gone. Like, a lot of them aren't with us anymore. And right, um, right. George, of course. Uh, so we've got a few left. But, you know, I think guys like John would also admit that they're curious looking at who will be kind of the new. And I'm wondering if, like, do you think that the new batch of horror guys 
they don't seem to stay in horror the way that John and George and those guys did, right? Like you look at guys like Robert Eggers or or um uh, what's his face? Um the one who did uh Midsummer. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh Harry Astor. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. seem to kind of want to do other stuff. And I'm right. I don't I'm not suggesting that they don't love horror, but it seems like they're not going to stay in just in the genre. Whereas a lot of those guys that we're talking about did. Do you think that, you know, that we might not get a new guard of masters of horror? It's an interesting question for sure. And I wonder if too, part of, part of the explanation might be that horror itself is no longer as clear cut and, and clearly defined as it once was. I mean, it was, you know, a couple decades ago, you knew you were watching a slasher movie. You what you knew it was a zombie movie. You knew it was this or that. And now um, that you get a film like Hereditary or Midsummer, or you get movies that are kind of transcending and blending genres together in a way that I don't think necessarily has happened before, you know, not not exactly like this. Right. So I don't know. I, I feel like maybe what it is, too, is that because directors like that are making films that that don't necessarily just feel like straight up horror movies, it's easier for them to pivot, you know, and to show that, you know, they don't just have to do horror, they can do thriller, or they can do a crime film, or they can do this or that. So maybe it's just um, a combination of those two factors. Uh, but yeah. that being said, I mean, there, there still are a, f- a few young directors that keep going back to horror. I mean, Stephen Kostansky, for example, you know, like yeah. he... He has well, I don't a genre think Steve has much desired to do anything. I think he's happy in the space he's in. I think so too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, I'm trying to think like like who else. I mean, you you have guys like what Ty West and uh, yeah. Um, it went well, quiet for a bit, but I was happy when he came back with X because it was really awesome. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, you get like Adam Wingard who um, yeah. was doing a lot of of horror, but then uh, but now he's kind of you know he's gone on to these huge. Godzilla movie. He has, yeah. yeah. Well, even James Wan, right? Like going yeah. and doing Fast and Furious and then doing uh, right. Aquaman and stuff like that. But I think at the core, he's just a phenomenal horror filmmaker. You know, I think that a guy yeah. like him will be recognized as being a master of horror. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird time for the genre, for sure. It is, because it's like on one level, the genre, I think, is bigger than it's ever been. It has an acceptance that it's never had. Uh, its box office is... You know, we talk about how the kind of the vanishing of the mid to lower and, you know, budget and, and but the only movies that are still operating in that space and doing well at the box office are horror, in my opinion. Like, yeah, you, people see these movies that clobber like, you know, the new Halloween films or, you know, uh, anything really by Jason Bloom. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. These movies are not big budget movies. You know what I mean? The Halloween people look at it. It has 100 million at the box office, but it was made for like 20 yeah. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's not compared to Disney, Star Wars, Marvel budgets. That's the coffee budget. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I think it is interesting that the horror genre has kind of taken over that space where, as I think that space used to kind of exist in sort of the um, drama world, you know, in the nineties in particular, everything in that space was, you know, kind of a Miramax Oscar type movie where the ones that were the 20, 30 million dollar movies. Right. Right. Now it's predominantly horror films. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting that, you know, you people talk about how horror used to be sort of a step above porn. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. 
it's interesting too because I was reading an article recently about how much more mainstream pornography has become, and I was like, interesting that they've risen to to that place together. <laughs> you know, porn and horror—the the kind of redheaded stepchildren climbing the mountain here. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it is right. interesting for sure. Um, I, it's interesting, like 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 Blumhouse Productions. I think I always loved the idea of how they made films. They had kind of a a, a modest budget. They knew their marketing budget, and and everything kind of got the same. You know the 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 Blum treatment, right? And and it wound up being extremely profitable. And I feel like it also put horror back in the mainstream and gave it a, a real, um, you know, renaissance in a way. Like like if you look at the films that have come out of the Blumhouse studio, I mean, there's there's some of the the best films we've had in the past ten years. Um, yeah. So it's 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 great that they're giving budgets and giving money to films that might not have otherwise you know, seen the light of day if they had gone to studios like Warner Brothers or, you know, Lionsgate or whatever. So it's nice to have a genre specific studio supporting horror. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting, too, like, when you look back at sort of how you developed a passion for the genre, can you kind of pinpoint the movies and the filmmakers that that made it? You talked about Wes, like, so Mm -hmm. I'm guessing maybe Nightmare on Elm Street was an early impressionable series for you? Yeah, it was. Uh, Obviously, like, I came to the horror genre first through uh, books. You know, I, I read a lot of horror stories and then the Goosebumps and Fear Street and all that when I was younger. Um, my my parents wanted me to kind of go chronologically through horror. So I didn't just, you know, go through like the 1980s, you know, slasher movies. So we did like, you know, Night of the Living Dead, a lot of the universal classics, just to kind of look at where horror came from, you know? Um, and then uh, I remember it was uh, Halloween night uh, when we watched Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th, kind of back to back to back. And after that, I was just, I was hooked on it. I just, I felt like I was at home in that genre. And I could tell that each film had a different flavor to it. You know what I mean? Like, they had mm-hmm. different personalities, different characters, different, you know, ambiance and different atmosphere. Um and then, yeah, after that, I just was just acquiring as many as I could. I would go to uh, my local video store every Friday night. They had like a five movies for five days for five dollar kind of deal. And I just worked mm-hmm. my way through the horror section. And that was kind of, you know, how I spent my my teenage years was just, you know, going through the genre. When Steve Kostansky was on the show recently, we were talking, you know, I think for all of us that are around the, you know, 80s, guys yeah. Uh, yeah. that's sort of your process right it's talking about finding your mom and pop video store yeah. and just like going through and digesting the entire horror section and you know finding kind of the filmmakers that, that connect with you or whatever and for sure you know and i also one of the things steve and i were talking about was um how you know it's a bit different maybe than sort of the streaming era in the sense of that so much then was about the cover of the movie you know what yeah. i mean like you if that co- movie cover just was punchy enough or spoke to you in a certain way you're like hey i'll watch that and and it didn't always the, often <laughs> the movie didn't live up to the said artwork but it kind of didn't matter because it still would create a relationship between you and the film and you know i think of how many movies that i remember because of that fucking vhs cover that it had like yeah you know um was that you know particularly for you as a as as a film artist you know as a, mm-hmm. as a, that, that does posters and does 
uh, film art, like, were you particularly mindful of, of the, the posters and of the, of the cover on movies when you went to the video? Oh, store? you bet. You bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the cover art for the VHSs were phenomenal and even horror novels, you know, at the time, a lot of, uh, you know, eighties horror books have fantastic painted covers. I think there's a, a good book called what is it, paperbacks from hell that kind of chronicles yeah. all of those. And, and they're, it, it's an incredible gallery. Um, but yeah, being being alive in the 80s and being a kid at that time, I remember my dad was a really big 80s horror fan. And he would go to the store with a pile of, you know, Elm Street uh, movies and Friday the 13th and all that. And uh, I would get a, a kid's movie or something and we'd, we'd be driving home and I would just be looking at the cover art for the movies he was, you know, renting. Because I'd, I'd ask him, like, who is Freddy? Why does he have the cool knives for fingers? The, the covers were just so iconic and in your face. And they, they raised so many questions. They made you want to, to rent the movie. Um, and I, I think that that was the whole job of the poster art, right? It, it almost, the, the, the movie itself didn't matter as much as the covers in, in, in a lot of cases, right? The, the poster was there to make you want to, to rent that movie, to go and buy the, the ticket and, and whatever. Anything that happened afterwards is just, you know, money in the bank for the filmmakers. But yeah, the poster art was very, very important and, and very effective. Yeah, it's funny. I, I almost always ask a, a guest what the first movie was they remember that really scared them. But I'm going to kind of revise this question for you. Do you remember sure. the first poster or cover that you were like oh that's so scary looking because i i can think of somewhere i remember it like i remember seeing that dawn of the dead cover you know where it shows the roger character coming and he's got the gray kind of makeup and he's uh-huh. yeah you know i remember being like oh that's so scary looking like and, and that movie threatened me because until i finally watched i was like eh. did you have a, an experience like that with a poster or a cover there was <laughs> there was one poster for a movie uh and i i always looked at it it had this grotesque uh kind of zombified guy um and uh there was a train and the movie was called the sleeping car and it had oh my god yeah and it had a tagline that said you know forget freddy forget jason here comes the mister and i would look at that every single time i went to the video store and i wanted to know like i'm like who is this (laughs) horror icon who is the mister (laughs) how is he even more powerful than these guys that i already you know think are incredible it was yeah. years and years later that I finally tracked that film down and watched it. Look, it did not live up to the decades of hype of that poster. Regardless, yeah. incredible poster. Like it, it always just really the marketing on that, man, it, it got this guy. It like the it was it was You well know, done. that's so funny because I forgot I sort of forgot about that movie. I remember it well now. Kevin McCarthy, I think, was in that. Could be, yeah. Could yeah. Yeah. Um uh, but I remember that poster because it's the same thing. It kind of laid out a challenge for me. It was like, Freddie, Jason, fuck him. This is where it's at. And I right? was like, oh, really? They're throwing down the gauntlet on the, like, how could you not rent the movie when the That's tagline right. is and promising that? And it's the that. same thing as you, though. You I know? think a part of me put it off because I was like, it's, m- I think some part of me knew it was more fun to be challenged by it than it was right. to take up the challenge. Right. That's you know right. what I mean? There was another movie. I was talking to Steve Kostansky about this. Movie. It was called The Dead Pit. And on the cover, it was like this zombie coming out of like a pit in the ground. And it had these red glowing eyes. Yeah, that I they kind that of yeah. put, Do you remember it? I do. And yeah. they put like these light up eyes on the cover. I mean, and that thing just like I was so like, that's so cool. Like not just the eyes, the zombie, everything about that was badass to me. 
Yeah. I don't know why they haven't done that with any Blu-rays or DVDs or anything. Like that level of innovation would be great. <laughs> it's funny but... too, like the '90s when they were using holofoil for everything. Like yeah. comic yeah. books, a lot of them had those foil covers. Uh, trading cards had the foil, um, but it was... I, I like the foil though. It's cool. Yeah, hey, I fun. like the foil too. I, I don't know if you remember yeah. the uh, covers for what was it, Mirror Mirror? There was like two of them, and you would <laughs> you would so there was the 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 woman who was like you know in fear in front of the mirror, and you would sort of angle it. There was like the witch or something something creepy yeah. coming out. i love those man like the yeah what, is it called lenticular or something is yeah, that the yeah, yeah 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 i remember the one for jack frost yeah, you'd yeah. Angle it. there's that, that one yeah. was, was prominent cool the frighteners had one like that frighteners was great yeah yeah there yeah those are great i mean uh yeah i love all that the gimmicks and the gags it's all great like full moon which was a company steve and i geeked out about for a long time for on sure. this show uh, had some of the great, you know, promotional gags for their films. Like they would send up just the weirdest merch to support some of their releases. And I just, you know, that goes back to guys like William Castle and stuff who would, yeah. who had skeletons flying over the audience's head and, th- you know, totally. gimmicks and gag and kind of the, um, the showmanship of the genre sometimes, you know, with those, the, yeah, the right yeah. movie, obviously you're not going to do that with, you know, um, you know, something like an A24 movie where it's like, you know, I can't see there being like a great gag for The Lighthouse or, or yeah, that's <laughs> The Witch. But no, you're, but... you're absolutely right. It is about the showmanship. And it, I think if you track the lineage of where this genre came from, the showmanship aspect of it is very important. And um, and certainly there is a, um, a certain... Uh, um, a certain type of uh, uh, collector, you know, uh, when it comes to the horror genre. I mean, we, we buy physical media still, we buy figures, we buy posters. And so to have the, um, the films come with that little bit of that little something extra, you know, that little incentive, right. To make it feel like you're not just getting a film, you're getting an experience, you're getting something that you can bring into your home and something you can put on display and something that you can talk about and have a, a nostalgic association with. I mean, it's very important, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting too. Like, you know, I, I go back and look at some of my favorite posters and, and covers and like, cause it's, it's, you know, I've had, I've explained this to some people too, and, and you'll be familiar with this. There was a lot of scenarios where a film's poster, especially theatrical was quite different than the artwork on the VHS or the DVD. Right. Like, right. You know, and as you get into the late nineties, early thousands, in my opinion, usually the DVR work was less than the, the theatrical poster. Cause mm-hmm we got into a very lazy Photoshop era of just like celebrity faces and stuff. Right. Um, which was, you know, like screams fault, but they didn't, they didn't mean to create the monster. They created. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I look back at like some of those great kind of, you know, painted s- s- uh, covers and, and, and posters, um, mm-hmm. you know, guys like Drew Struess and, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Who did this, these amazing things. Um, uh, who are some of your favorite artists of, of that kind of work? Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, probably the, the two that have had the biggest impact on me were Struzan and Bob Peake and probably mm-hmm. Matthew, uh, Matthew Peake as well. Um, who did the Nightmare on Elm Street posters. Uh, Graham Humphreys is another uh, great one who's still working today, uh, who still works traditionally. And then of course, like the, the modern guys like Gary Pullen, Jason Edmiston, um, Paul Shipper. Uh, Paul Shipper is a big one who is is very much in that Drew Struzan sort of line um, in terms of style. Uh, style is kind of interesting, right? Because I feel like when I was first uh, trying to build a portfolio, 
I was looking at what posters were coming out at the time. Uh, Mondo was really, really big. I mean, they were they were sort of on the rise. And you had artists who were doing a lot of um, kind of vector, that sort of uh, Adobe Illustrator kind of kind of work like Ken Taylor. Ken Taylor is a phenomenal artist. I mean, if you Google Ken Taylor, you'll recognize all of his work. He does a lot of um, uh, cover art and, and band posters as well. And I was trying to emulate that. Like, if you go back far enough and you look at the work I was doing 10 years ago, you'll find a lot of Ken Taylor kind of ripoffs, you know, because when you're first starting a, a career, you, you emulate your art heroes, right? You look at the, the work that is both popular, the work that you love, and you try and learn how to draw from that. I didn't go to uh, art school. Um, so my art school was just looking at what work was being done and trying to be relevant. You know, if I wanted a career in it, what did I have to learn and what would I have to do in order to get work, to get paid work? Um, for me, like the real turning point was in my portfolio of Ken Taylor ripoffs, I had one piece that I had digitally painted. And it was a portrait of Shelley Duvall from The Shining. And it was the only like painted work that I had. And I remember I was at Fan Expo, I think it was 2013, and uh, Jason Edmiston came over and I, it was my first time meeting him and he flipped through my portfolio and he was like, you know, nice, nice, nice. And he stopped on the, the painting of Shelley Duvall and he was like, this is what you have to do. You have to paint, you, you know, if you can, if you know how to paint, if you can paint, you'll get work. Um, so don't focus on emulating other people. He said, there's enough of that out there. A lot of people are trying to do this kind of work. Focus on being a painter. And I took that advice and that I, I, everything afterwards was very painterly, you know, like I, it took longer for me to do it. Um, but I tried to use my own background of knowing how to do traditional painting. I learned how to do oil painting from my, my grandpa, who was a, an artist. And I just very, very slowly developed my own technique to make my digital work look traditional. And, um, honestly, I, I really feel like his, like Jason's advice to me 10 years ago is a big part of why I get work now. Um, it definitely shaped the direction of, of my style, which then became very influenced by Drew Struzan and, and Bob Peake and Matthew Peake, and then other uh, artists like um, Francis Bacon, you know, these very kind of um, expressionist, darker uh, painted styles that I tried to throw elements of into poster art, which in my opinion, hadn't been done a lot before. Like, you know, you, I've got a whole series of sort of um, horror portraits and they're all messy and jumbled and, you know, there are a lot of brushwork and a lot of streaks of color and stuff like that. They're very non-traditional. They're not photorealist type things. And I, I feel like maybe they got the popularity and they were shared as much as they were just because they kind of broke the mold of what people were used to seeing in terms of horror art. Um, maybe, right. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, that's kind of how that evolution happened. And it was very slow. I mean, it was over the course of like nine or 10 years, but uh, definitely Jason pushing me in that direction was a big help. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see like, uh, you know, often for, I think any kind of artist, but it could take, you know, a certain alchemy of, of elements to sort of figure out your process and your approach and yeah. and that's everything from your influences to you know what you like and and what you want to sort of see your your work becoming you know do, sure. you, do you sort of can you kind of pinpoint for you 
how you developed a process of how you approach your work? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's funny because I, I feel like it's always kind of changing and I bet it's evolving even now. I feel like how I approach it in 10 years will probably be a lot different than I'm, I'm currently doing it. Um, again, like I, I didn't go to art school. Right. So like, I feel mm -hmm. like to a degree, uh, maybe that was beneficial or maybe it was harmful. I don't know because, uh, I, I didn't start working in the industry with a lot of experience of like how to properly tackle projects, how to lay things out, how to work with clients and how to, how, you know, and, and even in terms of, you know, uh, style and process, right? Like a lot of it was just sort of trial and error of, uh, of seeing, well, do I like, you know, do I like how this effect worked? And do I find that a, a big part of working as a film artist is being able to hit a deadline? Maybe the biggest part, more than even talent or whatever, because if you can't guarantee to a studio or a producer that you're going to deliver a poster in three days or five days or a week, it doesn't matter if you're Da Vinci and you have the, the best work ever. If you can't hit a deadline, they're not, you're not going to get more work. Um, and so a big part of developing a process and developing a style and all of those things is also trying to figure out, like, can you make a deadline? Can you be consistent? Can you put out, you know, a similar caliber of work over and like the repeatability of it? Can you do it over and over and over and still hit those deadlines for your clients? Because if you can't, it doesn't matter how much you love it or how good you are being in the entertainment industry or being a film artist. It's, it's just not going to work out. Um, so I feel like yeah. uh, the deadline definitely helps shape the process as well. Um, yeah, it, uh, it's tricky. I mean, I've kind of developed a whole system where, you know, I'll get either a screener copy of the movie or production stills. Um, I do a, a quick pencil layout as, as quickly as I can, um, you know, that I feel uh, more or less uh, gives you know, um, portrays the feeling and the tone of the movie and how they're trying to market it. Sometimes they're trying to market it a completely different way than the film actually looks. As you know, like think of like the masters of the universe movie. It had that incredible Drew Struzan poster. And a lot of people say they've never watched a movie that looked like that poster, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, there's, there can be a lot of back and forth initially with a director or a studio to try and really nail down the tone of how they're looking to market it. Um, and then you're kind of off to the races. And, and in terms of like the painting process, you know, it, it, you comfortably want to have a couple weeks to, to turn around a poster. Sometimes it's far less. Uh, you know, I know there's that famous story of Drew Struzan working on The Thing and having, what did he have, like one night to paint the entire poster? Yeah. And when they picked it up and took it uh, to be photographed, the paint was still wet on the paper. <laughs> I mean, so... Yeah, uh, your your style, your approach, all of those things, I think, are definitely affected by the deadline. And you have to be somewhat flexible. You know what I mean? Like, I would love to give the exact same process and same work to every single project. But you don't always have that luxury. You know, some posters, you're going to have more detail, more time. And then other projects, it's like you have, you've got two days, you know, we need this material. Can you can you turn it around and get it out? And you do your best, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, to think of, like, when you're approaching the design for a poster, you know, it's it's I imagine you know, there's a there's a certain sort of buffer room for for creative freedom. But you're also going to have 
in most scenarios, a producer or a director or a studio that's also giving you, you know, mandates or feedback. Um, yeah. What is sort of that process for you in terms of, you know, let's let's for now say it's a director and sure. you're working with this director and he's saying, these are kind of the things I want represented. How kind of abstract does that sometimes get? Like, do you have to then take someone's ideas and distill them into a visual communication of some kind going, okay, we want to get across these vibes and feelings, or we have to put, I have to put this thing in. Like what's sort of that process of working with the filmmaker to figure out what needs to be on that poster? Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because like that whole process is, it's a different ball game every time. Um, And a lot of it really uh, is based on the, the temperament and the, um, just the the filmmaker themselves, you know, in, in terms of how hands on or ha- hands off they they want to be. There there have been a, a couple projects where it'll be a big budget film, and I'll get all the assets, you know, production stills. I'll get the the screener. To me, I will watch it, get a really really clear idea of what I think just just summarizes the entire movie, and I'll put together a sketch and I'll send it off. They'll instantly give it an approval. I'll paint it. I'll hand over the work, and it's done. You know, and it, and those those are sort of like dream projects. And then there are other ones, um, and I find this happens a lot on more uh, independent films. Not always, but on films where the director is very very uh, attached, very hands on to every aspect of the movie, including all the marketing material and the poster art. Um, and those ones can be a little bit harder to, to get out, uh, to get out the door. Um, because typically you'll put together a layout and instead of going through one or two rounds of revisions, you might be looking at four or five of just pencils until the director says, okay, now everything's good. Let's go into, to painting. And then you paint it. And then there could be revisions after that. So it's always a little bit different, but, uh, speaking as, as like the, the artist who's doing it, I can tell you that you'll always get the best work from an artist if you're a little bit more hands-off, you know, like yeah. you don't have to feel so passive that, you know, you're, you're giving control over to an artist and you have to take whatever they give you. It's not that, but if you start managing like every little position of every element, it becomes very uninspiring for the person who then has to paint it. Right. Sure. And th- I think it definitely can show in the work as well. Um, you know, like, I don't want to name uh, projects, but there, there have been a couple times, I think two times in, in 10 years that I've had to walk away from a project just because I could not get the project done. I, I couldn't do it. Like we were on, you know, round, uh, round 20 of revisions. And at that point, wow. I just thought, you know, you have to cut your, you have to cut your losses at some point and yeah. just walk away. But um, that's yeah. very, very, very rare. Most of the time, it, it's a great collaborative process, you know, and you respect the film and they respect your art and it, it's great, but there are a couple horror stories every now and then, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> if you, and, and I imagine too, it must introduce a, a complication because uh, there's probably scenarios where a filmmaker <clears throat> or whoever doesn't know the language or how to communicate with a person who's going to design a poster. So, it so can you're going to get yeah. confused, confusing direction or, or, you know, whatever, how do you kind of, in that scenario in that do you kind of do a briefing or something to sort of break it down okay okay this is you know what i think you're looking for like what's that process of going all right this is the design we're going to move forward with to make sure that you don't have served too many cooks in the kitchen yeah yeah exactly i mean i think that this is where you really basically everything that you do prior to beginning to paint it is invaluable so you want to um 
instead of doing a, a quick pencil mock-up, you want to do a tighter pencil mock-up. You want to make sure that the portrait looks the way it's going to be painted. There have been times, like there, there are some clients that they know, you know, for example, they know my work, they know what it's going to look like, they're comfortable. I can I could draw stick figures and put it on a on a layout and they would they would sure. know, okay, it's gonna look photorealistic when it's done. We we are confident that we know what you're gonna do with it. And then there are other ones that they need uh, they need the the comfort of of looking at that penciled mock-up and being like, okay, it already looks tight. I can trust that. You know, if he could do that with the pencils, I trust the painting is going to be good as well. Um, I find that that happens less and less the longer I've been working in the industry. You know, like the work is out there more. I've got a bigger portfolio. I think people are more familiar with what the work will look like, that there's a bit more trust. But definitely in the very beginning, it's like you're taking more time uh, doing your layouts, doing your pencils. And then also referencing other material, referencing like a poster from Fright Night or the poster from, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and being like, this is the kind of lighting. This is the kind of, you know, style. This is the kind of whatever. When I talk about how a character is going to blend into the background, here's the poster for Phantasm. That's, you know, we're going to use clouds to sort of cover this. So having a lot of visual reference material that you can give to a client to help them to understand if it's maybe their first time working with a, with an artist can be very, very beneficial. It's interesting too, because there's certain posters that I think have kind of become, um, you know, the, the sort of almost archetypes for what people think of as being kind of great genre posters and Fright Night is definitely one of them. It's interesting you brought that one up. I think of how many people just on the show or that I've talked to, I've talked about, you know, seeing the poster for Fright Night and being like, Oh wow, I need to see that. You know, uh, the thing is another example of that. Um, you know, and it's interesting to me how sometimes the more abstract posters, are the ones that stick in people's heads the most, but then sometimes it's the most explicit ones, you know, do you think that that's sort of a reflection of, of the time a movie comes out in or the people, people's taste at that time or the film itself? Like what creates a poster that resonates like that, that a bunch of people will remember as being like, yeah, that poster grabbed me. Yeah. What I love about the more iconic posters, especially from the 1970s and eighties, if you look at the, the original poster for Halloween, no, there's no Michael Myers. It's like it's a jack-o'-lantern with the, <laughs> holding a knife. Right. If you look at the poster for Friday the 13th, there's no obviously there's no Jason, there's there's no uh, water whatever. It's it's just the outline of the the killer holding a knife and this sort of this this shot of the camp counselors. It's very ambiguous. You don't really know what you're you're looking at. Um if you look at the I mean I'm trying to think of most of these iconic posters uh they they rarely show portraits of the the people in the film. They're more abstract, and I think that the the abstract designs really help to pull in a potential viewer because you want to know more about the movie that you're you're holding, right? the The poster art doesn't give it to you at all. It doesn't give you the entire impression of the the movie. It, it sort of hints at what you're about to see in a very creative way that that draws you in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, when you look at, we've talked a bit about sort of different artists that, that you know, have inspired you and the influence they may have had in Rick, but, you know, how do you also find your own footing as an artist, you know, in a space that has, you know, certain things where the fans go, well, I like this style and I want to see more like this. How do you kind of embrace that, but also make it your own? Yeah, that, it's a challenge for sure. I mean, you know, 
the thing about art and having your own style is that when you start um, working more and more often, people kind of have an expectation that you'll deliver something similar to what you've done before. Um, so I think that f for an artist, it, it's important to kind of find your footing in terms of what you are comfortable delivering. So for me, like I consider myself very much a portrait artist, right? Like I would much rather draw portraits or monsters than houses or cars or right. things like that. Yeah. It's not to say that I can't do it. Like I do every now and then it's not what I'm known for. I'm always shocked. There, there are a few moments where people uh, will hire me to do um, a shot of a big haunted house. And I'm like, I know so many other artists who are great at houses. It's their thing. You know what I mean? They can do incredible atmospheric, you know, whatever. To me, it always seems a bit out of place when I'm hired for that specifically and not to draw a face or not to draw a monster. Um, so those projects to me are kind of the hardest, right? Because it's like, how do you take that approach of something that you're kind of well known for and you're familiar with and then apply it to something completely different in terms of like a more traditional poster, like the Halloween one there or the Friday the 13th, you can always try a slightly different approach. You can pivot, you can do kind of a different layout, a different color scheme, a different, you can experiment in different ways while still making it very much feel like it is one of your pieces, right? Like, yeah. um, there are very few times I think now where my work is a complete departure from what people expect. I just did a poster for uh, a movie called the breach uh, that was produced by slash uh, uh, from guns and roses and everything. And um, the poster I think is different from what I would normally do. Uh, it's a lot of mechanical wires and stuff and this sort of mutated hand coming at the viewer, not a lot of portraits, not a lot of faces, but I feel like very much if you compare it to my other work, it it still feels like it was done by me. And I think that when I, when it was released, I had people, um, there were people com commenting and being like, Oh, I knew right away that it was, you know, yeah, one, of, right. one of your works. And that's always good. Like I, I love hearing that because, you know, especially when I'm taking a risk with a kind of different subject matter, it's nice to know that the style is still consistently, you know, moving across into to the new work and that it's still at least recognizable as one of my pieces. Yeah. I think, you know, I've talked a lot about, um, in the past, how I think it's important for a director when you watch one of their films to be able to fairly quickly into go, oh, this is a John Carpenter movie or George Romero. Yeah. You know, those signature elements, a look and a feel and a tone that that go, oh, you know, this is this person's work. Um, you know, and and I think that your work has that for sure. When I look at one of your pieces, there's just certain qualities to them and textures and compositional components where, like, I can go, oh, that's one of Matt's. Oh, you know cool. what I mean? Is, cool. is that something <laughs> you have to be mindful of or does just that just happen as you hone in on your skill and do it more and you know start to develop I mean an identity in a space I think you know your work is becoming more and more well known people know your work now and know who you are as an artist do you think that just takes time or is that something you have to be mindful of it takes time it's funny um well I think you actually have to be mindful of it and it takes time I think you right. have to be aware of what people are responding to as well like look if you if you just want to be a visual artist and put your work in galleries and have that kind of art life and you want to work in that space you can do whatever you want you know what i mean like but to be in an entertainment world where your livelihood depends on how people respond to your work i think as much as it, it um can be 
hurtful <laughs> to read people's comments on your work. I mean, I get all, stuff all over the place. There's a famous YouTube video of somebody ripping up my work and burning it because they hate it so much. Really? <laughs> For real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So it does happen. And I know like uh, there was a, a, a little while ago, I worked on a, a Blu-ray cover and you know, you work on these covers and then you wait sometimes for a year for them to actually get released, right? So I remember doing this cover, waiting like 10 months and then the film finally came out and uh, my wife was like, oh, look, like it's been shared for the first time on Facebook and we were reading the comments and I swear it was 50% people being like, this is incredible. I love this. The best poster of this film I've ever seen. And then other people being like, this poster ruined the movie. Like, I don't want to buy it because I hate it so much. And I was just, I was shocked. You know what I mean? Like you, you yeah. hate reading that kind of stuff. But at the very beginning, I think it's important to look at what people are responding to. So when I was doing those sort of Ken Taylor <laughs> inspired pieces 10 years ago, and they were kind of flying under the radar and nobody really noticed them, right? Because there was another artist doing that better. You know, Ken Taylor was doing his style like, you know, the, like he had developed. But then when I started doing more painted work and more expressionist work, it was getting more shares. It was going on Bloody Disgusting. It was being shared by Fangoria. It was being shared by, you know, Dread Central. And uh, you would start reading the comments and people were buying it. People were this and that. And I'm like, okay, well if this is what people like, then I'm, I'm going to be more mindful of painting in that style and developing it in that direction, right? And so being in that entertainment space, definitely, yeah, you're, you keep one ear on what people like and the other on what makes you happy as well. And when you can marry those together, that's, I think, when you've kind of found your, your niche and your specialty. How do you kind of stay confident in your work, though, too, right? I mean, you've got, you're saying 50% of people are going, I fucking hate this. Yeah. And, you know, like, how do you then sort of go, well, I have to kind of do this. You know, I know for me, like, as a filmmaker, you make a movie and during the process, you know, you have producers and people who give you feedback. But I've never made like a studio movie. So I've never had that kind of meddlesome sort of thing where there's someone going, no, you won't be doing it this way. You'll be doing it that way. Because to me, it's like if that started to happen, then you lose your own voice because you're trying to just incorporate all this stuff. And, you know, it's that camel horse made by committee kind of concept. Have you ever, you know, in, in your process, like, do you have to be careful about how you relate to, you know, the client or whether that's a student or director in terms of, you know, when you can hear feedback so that it doesn't fuck with the design you're trying to do or, or the, the confidence you have about the piece you're approaching. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you definitely do. And there, there have been a, a, a couple times in particular where the client is, is such a big client and it's not just one person or two people. Like there is a panel of people, you know, looking at the art and everybody has a different, you know, idea of where the art should go. And there have been a couple of times where, you know, I've done, I've gone out of my way to do really, really tight pencils for the design, you know, and, and it, it takes longer. But, you know, it, in my opinion, when you get that approval, you're kind of locked in, you know what direction you're going in and it, it pays off down the road. There was one time where... I it did the really, really tight pencils. It got approval. I painted the entire thing. Like the, it took a month and they got it. And they said, actually, no, we're going right back to the very beginning. We need a different poster. We've decided that's not the direction we want to go with it. We actually want a completely different style. Um, and then they'll reference like a piece I did 
which was, you know, uh, again, like in, in a totally different ballpark. I'd be like, we actually yeah. want that, you know, we want those colors. We want that type of design. And then you feel kind of weird about it, too, because you feel like you're repeating yourself a bit. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's an equal part of like flattery of like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that you really like my past work and you like what I did for this client. But then it becomes a challenge of like, well, how do I conjure that, but still feel like I'm putting out something kind of original, you know? So I don't know, like, like those, those moments definitely do happen. Um, and they can be, they can be challenging. Um, but again, it, it's in those moments that you kind of have to remind yourself that you're an artist working on art, but the art is just a product. Yeah. And you, you can't be as precious about it as, you know, if you were at home in front of a canvas painting something that only was for you that you were going to put up on a wall or, or make a difference in one person's life. You know what I mean? Like, like that kind of art is completely different. And, and I love painting like that. You know, my, my actual house is covered in these big canvas boards of things that they're not photorealistic and they're not, you know, probably nobody would ever buy them, but I love them. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. but then here, um, it's all about a product It's about what, what can I put down that will sell this movie or sell this book or sell this comic book. Right. And so you kind of have to get a little bit hardened, you know, to the criticism or the, um, and not take it personally. Right. Because at the end of the day, yeah, you're treating it like art and you're, you're thinking, you know, it's an expression of my creativity and whatever. Not, not everybody's thinking that though. You know what I mean? They're thinking it's going to be in a Walmart, you know, and, and I want somebody to pick up that Blu-ray and buy it. So it's just, it's just about changing your mindset sometimes. Have you ever sort of, you know, done a, a poster or a cover and then after going through the feedback process and making adjustments been like, I don't really like this anymore, but it's what they want. Like, have you had that experience yet? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Been... Is that tough to swallow at that point? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get easier because yeah. the unfortunate part is that, um, you know, for every project that gets completed or every poster that gets released or whatever, uh, oftentimes there are two or three other versions of it or layouts or whatever that will never see the light of day. That would have been really cool that the artist knows they could have knocked out of the park, but it just wasn't what the filmmaker or the studio wanted, you know, and Hey, that's fair. Like I, I get that. Um, there are times where, yeah, the, the circumstances are not ideal for creating the work that you're fully happy with. I can say that anything that leaves my studio is the best that I could possibly make it given the circumstance, you know, whether that's an ideal client and I've got all the time and money in the world or whether it's a rush job and the client is a little bit unsure of what they want and the relationship can be a little bit rocky. Either way, like I've never put art out there that I didn't feel was the best I could have done with it. Um, but that being said, there, of course, there, there are times where you look at it and you wish that maybe you had been given the opportunity to do something a bit different. And, you know, unlike, I think when you're making a movie, you know, which can take like two or three years of your life, yeah. 
Um, you know, so you sometimes fight for something and you're like, you know, no, I, this needs to happen for this movie to work. Right. But I, I imagine, you know, with a poster, which is not the same level of commitment, like how, what, well, how long is the time frame approximately, you know, on average to complete a poster? So it really does vary. Like, uh, and it right. depends on the, the complexity of it. Like if you're, if you're looking at something with like 10 portraits and they're going to be more photorealistic and you've got maybe a little house or a car or something like that, like, like for example, the cult hero poster, um, Mm-hmm. um jesse cook's poster that, that i did um i think that took about a month you know from laying okay. it out to painting it and i'll try and do like a portrait each day and and that type of thing i always love if i can have three to four weeks to do a poster i mean that's really ideal um because then i don't feel rushed i feel like i can have a you know there's there's breathing room i can go back and forth with the client we can really nail down that layout and that's all great again if you're doing it as your full-time job and you want to be getting work, uh, you have to be able to turn out a poster in three to five days, if need be, you know? Right. Um, wow, that's a that's a radically different time frame. It's a hugely different time frame, and you have to adjust yeah. your layout, you know? You're not going to go yeah. in with, uh, with a client and say, you know, I'm going to paint these 12 portraits, and we're going to have, you know, lightning, and there's going to be these cool effects. You're going to say, okay, there's going to be um, a predominant center image, you know, that takes up most of the, the room, and it's going to be a very you know, central, uh, heavy poster, you know, with maybe a couple little elements elsewhere, but we're going to give the illusion that it's maybe a bit more full than it really is with textures and lighting and all that sort of stuff. So I remember one of the first, uh, piece of advice I was given early on in my career, uh, this was as a writer was I turned in a script to a producer. I was writing kind of on spec mm-hmm. and he read it and he goes, yeah. And I said, well, do you want me to kind of think about the limitations of the budget of this when I'm writing? And he said, no, write it however you want to write it. Just write Don't worry about that. Just write the script. And then, uh, and I said, okay. So I wrote it. And then at the end he said, well, I, what I did want to tell you then is like, when you're writing it, yeah, in this scene, write it as an elephant. But when we shoot it, it'll probably be a cat. Right. Um, you know, and I've always kind of thought of that, you know, that sort of reality of independent filmmaking is I don't think you should ever limit yourself at that creative development level. But the reality of impl- implementing those concepts and ideas sometimes is a whole thing. And you sure. can't, you have to be pliable. You can't, you know what I mean? But I think for you is it, you know, and, and you're a writer and a filmmaker in your own respect as well but when you're doing your your posters and stuff you're not married to you know time is the only limitation you can paint whatever you want i would think if you have the time because you're not limited by you know like if we wanted to use an elephant that's a whole different thing than using a cat so for you though you can paint an elephant probably relatively just as easy as you could a cat sure yeah (laughs) um you know, does that become that thing of like, okay, the sky's the limit. Like if you're explaining that to a client, can you kind of say, well, the sky's the limit, but if you want, you know, that, that, that it's going to take this amount of time. If I've only got this one time, this is good. What you're going to get. Can you distill it to a formula as simple as that for somebody? Sometimes yeah, it really depends yeah. on what, what they're after. You know, what's funny actually that you mentioned it is that, you know, most clients want the poster, which is weird. Most clients want the poster to actually reflect elements from the film. They don't want to right. go above and beyond. They don't want to almost over-deliver, which is what the posters did in the you know, 70s and 80s, where you would have stuff on the, on the film posters that just was never going to show up in the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Which yeah. is, is all, actually always kind of interesting to me. And in, in fact, like, uh, you know, like when I did the poster for The Breach, again, just I keep thinking of it because it was more of a recent poster that I did. All of the things that I've painted on there exist. You know what I mean? Like I, I, in fact, maybe dialed some of it back um, just because it was too graphic, 
you know, in the movie, it's, it's, it goes above and beyond. Um, but yeah, it's very rare that somebody will say, you know, okay, we've got, uh, this tiny explosion in the movie, but on the poster, we want it to look like you're exploding an entire house or a gas station or something. I mean, not typically, most of the time it's just, uh, you know, kind of find a way to entice a viewer by putting elements that exist in the movie in a very painterly way on a poster and, and, and draw an audience in that way. I've, I, you know, there's a lot of hate in the genre community for what people sort of describe as the Photoshop style poster. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think there's such affection for, for painted film art and, and such sort of disdain for what's described as Photoshop? Right? Do you think that's just sort of, you know, has its basis in nostalgia or do you think it is, it's more than that? Well, I think it depends on what angle you're coming at it from. So, for example, like, if you're a film collector, you know, if you're a poster collector, or an art collector, you look back on the glory days of, I mean, for so long, film posters, theater posters, everything was hand painted, right? So there's, there is a lineage, um, which I feel maybe they, some people feel the Photoshop era kind of betrays that, you know, the, the work that went into, you know, even things like hand painted signs at flea markets and whatever, right? There was the human touch removing that, you know, maybe it does detract from that whole process that we're used to, that we're accustomed to seeing. Um, certainly like within the industry itself, uh, if you go to a Photoshop poster that you can do in a couple hours, you're cutting a, a painter right out there. You're, you're limiting their career, right? Like you're cutting them out. And obviously like from an art perspective, uh, you know, if you are a poster painter, <laughs> you are not going to be looking at Photoshop posters as favorably, right? Because that could have been a project you worked on. You know what I mean? Like, so it, it reduces the amount of work that you have. Um, I think there's a lot of very, very talented Photoshop artists who can do wonderful things with, with photography and, and make really cool stuff. But I think that in the 90s, there was just this... Um, laziness maybe there was just it was like the factory setting where you would just sort of have this process of, of cutting out faces and kind of blending it and blurring it and throwing a background on and they just looked they looked like there wasn't a lot of effort involved you know yeah and particularly when as as you and I both know like film is all about effort it's about pouring your life into a project and putting your heart and soul into it and as a film goer putting your money into it as well, uh, you, you don't want the, the product to look cheap or to look rushed or to look whatever, right? So if you go and you see this beautiful Drew Struzan poster, it adds, it enhances the experience. It adds to the magic of it, right? You feel, you can feel the work and the effort and the magic literally coming off the screen and coming off the, the page, off the poster. If you see something that looks like it was kind of thrown together, you know, and, and it doesn't have, it's not inspired. It's just sort of, it's just there. I think it, it impacts the overall product in a negative way. And I think that people started picking up on that in the, through the nineties. And I think that resurgence of hand painted posters, um, is because yeah, it hits the nostalgia button, but it also just, just in general makes the whole experience more complete and more special. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to sort of note too, that like 
when you talk about a poster sort of being part, you know, I think of a great poster as being part of the experience of the movie. Sure. You know what I mean, as much as you love the movie, sometimes that that poster or that art is is part of that experience for you, and it's why you put it up on your wall. It's not just to celebrate the movie; it's also to celebrate that piece of art that is the poster and, and the the outward face of the movie. Mm. So I think when you got into that era of posters that were all just like faces of celebrities, it was like. Well, that's just a picture of, you know, whoever, of some famous person. That doesn't tell me really anything about the movie other than that that person's in it. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that feels more like a cologne ad or something than it does like a movie poster. And I think there was that kind of, for fans, there was that response of like, well, that doesn't feel like part of the experience for me. That just feels like you're trying to sell me a ticket by going, hey, these guys are in the movie. And so I think that kind of, you know, became a part of the backlash of that was like, you know, I even was talking to someone about this recently. Um that movie, uh, The Northman, oh, yeah. with Alexander Skarsgård, they had this beautiful painted poster of it early on. And then as when they released it, they did one of those kind of like Photoshop-style posters of just the actors, you know, sort of centered in a sort of a... Yeah. They were all kind of centered around each other. And, yeah. and it was like, wow, they had this really dynamic poster, and now it's just like, here's who's in the movie. And, you know, I always... That feels so much safer to me because you feel like it's a studio going, I, we need to make sure everyone knows we paid all this money to have all these famous people in the movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. You're, you're, if you do a, a poster like that, you're selling the celebrity. You're selling the the. Right. Um, it feel like you said you're selling a product. Whereas if you have sort of a magical painted poster, you're selling an experience. You know, like yeah. you're you're promising that you're gonna you know be entranced by this idea of what the movie is, and you're gonna be you're gonna buy your ticket, and then you're gonna go in, and you're gonna have this like this great this great time watching this movie. Right. And whereas the other one just feels more like a placeholder, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. X and X and whoever is, is actually in this movie. This is why you're going, you're going for the person for the actor, which is fine. A lot of people do. Um, but you know, I, I think there is, there will always be room for hand painted art. Um, and I think it, it's just very important. There's a great artist. He's kind of a little underrated in my opinion, named Lee McLeod. Do you know Lee McLeod? No, no. No. He did um uh uh like all the full moon stuff, but he did um some of the um oh, what, there was a huge movie he did the poster for, and a lot of people think it was Struz, but it wasn't. It was Lee McLeod, and I can't remember what it was oh, off the top okay. of my head, but very underrated artist. And I remember the reading an interview where he was sort of talking about um how some people kind of have this idea of like, well, you know, you showed something on the poster that isn't actually like in the movie. And he was like, but sometimes, you know, we would do these posters before the movie was made. Right. So That's right. we didn't know if it was going to be. And so, and then it was about evoking a feeling or an idea in an audience right. uh, because we didn't have a finished film. And and all you hoped was that, that you'd be loyal enough to, to what, the, what they came out with that, that that feeling or that idea that was conveyed in the poster would, would represent well in the film. Mm -hmm. And I can think of a lot, particularly like full moon who would have these incredible posters and there was no way they had the budget to realize <laughs> the image on the poster, right. but it was okay because it, it gave you a feeling and a vibe, you know, of what they were doing. Yeah. Um, you know, do you think that it's okay in a movie or is it a ripoff to do that, to sort of show something on the poster? You know, do you think that's a promise to the audience of like, hey, this is what you're getting and then not have it in the movie? Or do you think it's like Lee was saying, like sometimes it's about just evoking a feeling, even if it's not exactly in the film? No, there's a whole thing uh, in that deals with honesty in advertising, right? Like um, the last day job that I had, I was a creative director for an advertising agency in Toronto. I did that for a year. Um, 
and these are things you have to think about. You have to be very careful with what imagery, what what wording, how you are are what you're promising that the product will deliver. Personally, when it comes to films, my favorite posters are the ones that are completely off the wall. That like there's you right. know the, there are these phenomenal like Polish posters for movies like Rosemary's Baby. Um, yeah, some of them are insane. They look yeah. like they are works of art. I mean, you, they yeah, you could totally. literally slap any title on them because they have nothing to do with the movie. I love that. I I could be in a minority. And it could just be because I, I love art uh, and I love poster art, but I, I just, I can't get enough of them, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of like, like film posters, do I feel that they, they should be honest about what to expect in the film? I, I don't think it matters that much. I mean, what I think matters is will somebody look at the poster and will they be drawn in by whatever imagery is on it enough for them to want to rent that movie? Because ultimately, isn't that that's more or less what it comes down to, right? Is like that is the point sure. of the poster is to get somebody to pick it up off the shelves in the midst of 500 other movies on that shelf. What makes you pick up that yeah. one? Is it the hall of foil cover? Is it the tagline? Is it the really flippant cool art that that just makes it stand out amongst all the others? I mean, at the end of the day, again, this is a whole question of ethics in terms of um, marketing and the advertising world. But I, I definitely think, yeah, like you need to find that thing that makes your poster stand out from the rest, right? And yeah, I mean, some of them, some of that just means you're going to put in imagery that just really perplexes an audience that just makes them say, I, I got to see that. And yeah, sure. Sometimes they rent it, they watch it. They're like, well, I feel ripped off. And <laughs> yeah, you, you don't yeah. want that. You do you do not want that. But from the right. perspective of the illustrator who did the work, I mean, they kind of did their job. You know, they they made a product yeah. that looked so cool that you had to rent it. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting too. Like you talk about some of the foreign posters and like, I'm with you. Like I love, you know, I have whole books on this of, of some of these crazy alternative foreign posters. And some of them are really out there. Yeah. Like some of the ones in Japan and China and European countries where it's like, you know, I think of that one. I always remember Bruce Campbell joking about that army of darkness poster where he like looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's like just this huge, you know, and it's just like the most epic looking thing. Of course, in the movie, everything is scaled down. Bruce does not look quite like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> There's less skeletons. Who cares though? It's just part of the fun of that experience. You know, well, this is, this is, on the other yeah, hand, yeah. adversely, I think, you know, there was a trend and they still do it of promising, you know, an actor in a movie that's going to be like in a major role. And then they're in one scene and the audience is like, you put them right on the fucking cover and put their name on the top and they're in, two minutes in the movie right that to me feels dishonest yeah, yeah, that yeah. feels like a real i think that there there is a spectrum in which you can work in terms of enhancing things enhancing um things that might not be as interesting to make it more interesting for a, a buyer or a renter you know to pull that movie off the the cover like or, or off the shelf like i'm thinking if, if i was to do like a a cover for army of darkness and it had you know it was in a creepy cabin and it was just a shot of bruce campbell and a deadite and they're sitting down having tea and you can see the chainsaw propped up against the wall. You know, that doesn't ever happen in the movie. But the absurdity of that image may, if it was painted well, you know, if it was painted like a Norman Rockwell painting or something, you yeah. would look at that and be like, 
I got to find out what's the deal with this movie. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. Like, you're still showing Bruce Campbell. You're showing the Deadite. You're putting them in a situation that, yeah, never really occurs. But I don't, I don't know. That's that's where it would be a, a conversation of like, yeah. you know, is it fully dishonest or is it just partially dishonest? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. And in what way is it dishonest, sure. right? Is it taking a liberty that that is in the sake of having some fun with a concept or, you know, taking something going, we're just going to kind of big this up a little because it's fun to do it. To me, that's a different thing than than pulling the rug out from un, from under someone by saying like, hey, your favorite actor's in this movie. Oh, great. And then they put it on that person as a cameo. You know what I mean? Like no, that to sure. me feels yeah. like a shitty move because now that person's whole experience is kind of tainted by them going, when is so-and-so coming back? And then the movie ends and they're like, oh, I got duped. Yeah, like yeah. that to me yeah. is something. Because like at the end of the day, different. what you don't want um, for the most part is to go through a movie and grab screen caps of like, you know, celebrity faces or this or that and put them all together on a poster and be like, well, there's your poster. It might look good, but it's not going to be totally interesting. You know what I mean? What mm -hmm. you want is that extra human element from the artist who says, no, let's embellish that. Let's make this guy have bigger muscles. Let's put an explosion here. Let's put a castle. There's, there's no castle in the movie, but it would look really cool here. And then I, I think you have to, you do approach it with a different creative liberty while you know, yeah, you don't want to make an audience feel like they're being ripped off, but you do want to make it look interesting enough that people will go and see the movie. Because at the end of the day, filmmaking and a visual art, right, they, they're they different mediums. One is moving pictures. One has the liberty of giving you, you know, a 90-minute experience or a three-hour experience. The other one has to capture your attention in in an instant, you know, in one yeah, image. That's right. So yeah, I've, I, I, yeah, I think that's why maybe visual artists and posters are given the grace to embellish and add a bit of imagery that is not necessarily in the movies. And you also collaborated on a, um, a comic book, right? Uh, with uh, a few different filmmakers, Steve Kostansky, Brandon Cronenberg, John Kanaz. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about the comic book that you did. Yeah, so that comic was called The Gates of Misery, and uh, it came from kind of my love of Tales from the Crypt and Creep Show and Eerie Comics or Eerie Magazine and, and Creepy and all those and the work of, you know, Bernie Wrightson and, and all that. And uh, again, growing up in a small town, I always liked the idea of a small town that had a cursed graveyard in it. And I love the idea that instead of having a crypt keeper or anything with a face, that the cemetery itself could be alive and could have this kind of weird uh, consciousness and, and want to be a storyteller. And if you found yourself in that graveyard, well, it knew the stories of how everybody that was buried in it lived and died. And it would tell you the most horrific ones, you know? I just thought that was kind of a, a cool concept. And so I... Uh, put together kind of a little pitch and an outline and drew a couple sample panels of the graveyard and everything. And I approached the, uh, yeah, Steve was the first one I talked to and asked if, you know, if he was interested in writing something for it. And I knew that he had never written a comic before I knew, uh, but that was kind of the idea. I wanted to work with filmmakers who had never worked in the comic medium before. And I said to them, all you have to do is just write, you know, a five page screenplay. And essentially I'll be storyboarding it, but like, as a comic, you know, I'll, I'll be kind of directing it. <laughs> um, and Steve, yeah, he, he came on, he wrote uh, one called Reface Malfunction, 
which has kind of a full moon sort of vibe to it. It's about, it was kind of a Lovecraftian story about a, a scientist, uh, but in a classic, you know, Steve over the top gory kind of way right, yeah. who goes into this <laughs> yeah. other dimension, um, but can't properly phase back into reality. And it was fun. I mean, it was, it was over the top and actually a lot of the, or not a lot, but some of the imagery you can, you can find came back in the void as well, especially like the inverted pyramid right. and stuff like that. Um, on a whim, I contacted Brandon Cronenberg cause I was just such a big fan of his and I, uh, just loved his mind. I thought he just is such a creative, you know, quirky guy. <laughs> um, and I got his email and just sort of cold emailed him, had never met him before. And uh, he emailed back and was just very, very gracious and very interested. And uh, we, we met, talked about the project, and, and he wrote something for it. And it was very Brandon. It was, um, you know, kind of a, a vacation gone wrong uh, where somebody dies and just the fallout of how that particular culture deals with death and murder and, and all sorts of stuff. It was, it was very interesting. And then John, uh, I contacted because I had loved Jack Brooks monster slayer the first time I saw it like 10 years ago or whatever, and, uh, emailed him. And again, he, he agreed to come on and write something just, you know, out of the blue and, and everybody did, did it for free. I mean, they all just, I've, it was early on in my career. I, I didn't have any money for anyone. I just, thought it was a cool mm -hmm. project. I mean, they, they were all just very, very cool people. And honestly, I think that the fact that I get to do what I do now and that my career took the turns that it did is because of the generosity of a lot of people. And, and the fact that I fell into a few really, really lucky breaks along the way. I mean, no one, you know, had to do this. They could have easily just said, nope, it's not for me, you know, and, and maybe the comic would have happened. Maybe it wouldn't have, but they were all phenomenal. They, they wrote stuff. I illustrated, we put out the comic and yeah, it was a great experience. It was a, a lot of time, a lot. It was a big labor of love. And I think that that's what they understood too, was the fact that for me, it was a labor of love and they loved those things as well. And so it just, the collaboration and the energy and we all just got along really well. It's cool too, to think of, you know, I, I always thought that comic books were particularly cinematic, right? Because as you said, they're storyboards. They are. They're, they're very and, and, refined and, and, storyboards, you know? Yeah. yeah, right. You know, and they're, and they're, the, the way a story is told in a comic book is very similar to, to cinema, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of using an image to tell the story and not, you know, and there is, of course, dialogue in comics, just as there is in films, but there has to be an emphasis on a visual quality, you know, for the most part. Of course, there's exceptions, but. So I do think comic books, I've always saw them as particularly cinematic. Mm -hmm. And I think every director, you know, in the in the horror space predominantly, or but maybe in others as well, there's probably that pull in, in every filmmaker to be like, got to be fun to do a comic book. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think so. And, and, and especially for guys like, you know, Steve and Brandon and John. I mean, if you grew up in, in that time where horror comics were such a big deal and really helped yeah. form, you know, our horror taste as well. I mean, I think we all grew up reading Eerie, Eerie magazine and, and knowing, you know, the zombies that Bernie Wrightson would draw and stuff like that. So it was cool that, yeah. you know, I, I don't think that Brandon would have worked on a comic uh, necessarily had I not contacted him. And I think there was just something that appealed to him maybe about, about dipping his toe into that kind of world, you know? Um, but it, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and afterwards, uh, even though we only put out the one issue, <laughs> I always kind of thought it would maybe, you know, go on and we'd pull in other artists and all that sort of stuff. It didn't exactly go that way. But 
I still really loved the idea of the town that we created and the graveyard. And even though, you know, those stories belong to Steve and, and Brandon and John, um, the overall, the sort of the wraparound of that cursed town and that graveyard and everything, I always thought would be very, uh, very cinematic and would make an interesting kind of anthology. And, and so it's kind of funny because that, that whole project as a film, uh, I developed for a while with John Knotts. We, we wrote a screenplay, a feature screenplay. We started pitching it around. And for a time in that 2014 to 15 uh, frame, that project went everywhere. Like that feature script had so many different producers attached to it. It went to Blumhouse for a while. It went to um, WWE Studios for a while. It went all over the place and it, it was close to getting made a few times. And then just, you know, it was one of those things where it just didn't happen. But it was a weird, weird project. It sounds cool. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the comics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Geek. Like, yeah. it's funny you're talking about too. And I think horror comics are kind of having a renaissance. You know, you go to your local comic shop these days, just a lot of horror comics on the shelf. Yeah. And for me, as a horror comic guy, you know, I always went into the local comic shop and it was like having to root through all the shields and muscles and girls in spandex to find like those zombie covers and stuff. Because yeah. horror comics were, you know, not popular the way that superhero comics were. Mm-hmm. Now I find like I don't have to look hard. There's a lot of horror comics on this show. Why do you think horror comics are having kind of a, a bit of a renaissance? That's a good question. I mean, definitely like you know, The Walking Dead and uh, a, a, a few projects like that have really brought horror comics back into the the mainstream um, and kind of given revitalized them a bit. Um, I think that comics in general just. Uh, because of superhero comics. I think there was sort of a trickle-down effect where, you know, people, after they had, you know, not exhausted Batman and Spider-Man and all that, they were starting to look and see what what else was out there. And just the overall popularity of it, it gave rise to a lot of independent publishers and creators having the internet to be able to, you know, make your content available and seen by more people. I just think that in terms of uh, the comics medium, there was just such a big boom, you know, and definitely audiences were just hungry for all of that content, not just the superheroes, but also the um, the more serious takes on stuff, you know, the Watchmen stuff. And, and they're looking more in right. the, like Frank Miller vein of things and not just the, you know, happy Justice League stuff, you know, not the Justice League is always <laughs> happy, but you, you know what I mean? Like they're looking for more mature adult stories in comics. Yeah. And I think that um, creators know now that they can get their work seen. And and even though arguably the market is maybe oversaturated a bit, um, you know, it's still a great time to be an artist and a writer and a creator um, because there, there's an audience for it. As a writer, do you have like a, uh, a writer's block trick that you use if you get stuck? Um, so for, for me, when I'm starting like a new screenplay or something like that, um, so I work with a writing partner who lives in Los Angeles right now. And typically we go back and forth. We'll have phone calls and we'll kind of hammer out like a, a good 10 page treatment before we do a feature or a, or a pilot. And then typically the way we work is I'll write the first draft. I'll pass it to him and we'll go back and forth until we've got something. But, you know, when I, when I sit down to actually write a, a, a screenplay, normally I have that moment where I'm like, 
there's no way I'm going to be able to write like five pages, let alone, you know, a hundred pages, right? It's that moment of like, how, how is this ever going to happen? And then typically after you get going and you're 10 pages in and 20 pages in, you're like, oh, you know, the fear is alleviated, but it's always at the very, very beginning um, mm-hmm. that I get the fear where I'm like, how, how do you, how is this ever going to come together? And yet it, it does somehow. Um, you get 20 pages done in one sitting. So I actually aim <laughs> to do a first draft in three to four days. Um, and it's just a complete vomit draft. Um, but you're like, I, I'll work on it for like 14 hours every day. And then just get it out. Because I find that even though like, it, it'll start off strong, you know, your first act is like really polished and everything. By the time you hit the third act, it's like, you're just trying to get it out. But I found that if I if I don't do that, a lot of times I won't get it done. You know what I mean? Like it'll, it'll just keep living in my head and then I won't feel the urge or that push to like to write it. Um, and I know it's different for everybody. I know there's some people that do, you know, five to 10 pages a day. For me, I just have to get it out. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I, I kind of work on artwork the same way where the majority of the work gets done right at the very beginning. Just, right. Yeah. I'm always curious too, because, you know, you're a, a, a multi-talented individual. You're a, you're an artist and a musician, but you're also a filmmaker <laughs> and a writer. And, you know, what is this sort of, this is sort of a broad question, I guess, but I'm curious, you know, you have a probably at this point developed, and we've talked about it a bit, a, a process to how you approach creating a poster and working with a client to do so or a filmmaker or whatever. But right. now how, how does that sort of, are there any similarities that you bring over to your process as a writer in terms of how you distill ideas and convey them in a screenplay, uh, or is it a completely different animal? Huh. That, that is interesting. I, I feel like it, it is a completely different type of type of thing. I mean, I think that my work ethic is the one thing that is similar. And, and we talked about that just in terms of like, for me, I know that, um, you know, I think that a lot of my artwork, like, especially the expressionist type of, paintings right that have a lot of brush strokes and lines and scratches there is um i try to put an energy into that and a lot of times uh that can mean walking away from it while it feels a bit unfinished you know because the more you rework it the more polished you can run the risk of it looking too overworked um so i know that for me uh you know approaching like a screenplay or something like that involves you know, once I have the storyline and I know roughly where it's, you know, I've, I've sort of mapped it all out. I know where it's going. It involves like sitting down and just trying to, to get it all out while it feels fresh, while I'm still very excited about it and while I can still vividly see it. And if I know if I if I wait too long and I talk to too many people about it, every new person that I tell the story to it becomes more refined, right? Because every time you tell them a story, you you learn how to kind of tweak it and it gets better and better. But you then lose the desire to go and write it down, right? Because you're, te- you're already telling people, you're already sharing it with yeah, people. Totally. So you almost yeah. have to kind of resist that urge and hold on to it. The same with poster art, right? Like, I don't want to show people the work while it's not done. I want to work as quickly as I can to get, it, uh, to get it done so then I can share it the way it was meant to be shared with people, right? So I feel like that is the one kind of driving force that does affect my art, my writing. All of that is trying to put it down and not spoil it by being excited and, and, and spoiling it by talking to too many people about it and sharing it before it's actually been completed. Um, 
because you only have one shot to make a first impression with people. You know what I mean? If you show somebody yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a horrible sketch or a horrible cut of your film, wouldn't it be better to just keep that to yourself and get it to the point where it's more presentable and you know it actually reflects what you want it to? And and I, I don't know. That's the one thing that, that I struggle with because I always want to talk to people about ideas. I feel like I always have a million ideas and I'm always excited by all of them. I think my friends are so tired <laughs> of hearing me talk about projects and probably half of them I, I don't do. And I think the ones that I don't do are because I get too excited and I, I get it out of my system. I talk about it for too much and then I'm like, I don't feel like writing it now. You know, like it has kind of served yeah. its purpose. So I don't know. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I, I absolutely agree. And it was something I learned early in my career and it took me a while to learn. It was like, you can kill your idea by making yourself too comfortable with that idea. Right, right. If you spend too much time kind of stewing in the juices of your brilliant concept, <laughs> before long you'll find some way to talk yourself out of its brilliance. Or, you know, I think a lot of good ideas die that way because yeah. people just don't do anything with them or they or they talk about them too much you're right you you know I, I remember early on having script ideas and talking to you know 15 absolutely creative different creative people about it and they all had great different ideas but by the time you're done talking to those 15 different people they all have different ideas and whether you're really wanting to use those, those ideas or not they're going to find their way into your head a bit sure. before long you're like uh this should i change it you start to get there's it, it kind of creates a, a confusion between your relationship to the idea. So I think you're really, really dead on correct about like, don't tell too many people your idea. <laughs> don't show too many people. And I always say that to people, particularly when younger filmmakers have asked me questions like, you know, when to show a rough cut. I'm like, don't, right, do right. not show it. Like, don't show a script. Don't show a cut of a movie until you, until you really feel ready because yeah. The worst thing you can do, and I've been through this, is like someone says, oh, I know how to read a script. I'll understand what, what the weaknesses are. Yeah. No, they won't because every script is different and the way everyone approaches it. So they might think that they've read enough rough drafts that they'll understand how to plug in the holes in your rough draft. They won't. They'll just think it doesn't and work. And if they don't like it, it's really hard to then come back two months later and say, oh, well, here's the finished one. Can you read it? They're not going to really like not gonna have the drive to go back and <laughs> yeah. revisit it. And it's funny because like no. I remember, you know, growing up, you always get you're always told the cautionary thing of like, don't tell people your ideas and whatever, because they could, you know, steal them or, or whatnot. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm less worried about that and more worried about it from the perspective of how we just, you know, we're just talking. It's like if you yeah. tell it too many times, well, then that's kind of how you've chosen to tell that idea is verbally to a few people. You're not then going to feel the need yes. to go home and work for a, a week or a month or a year and plug out a screenplay. You're already going to feel this sort of sense of freedom. You've put that idea out there. You know, it's free. You've done it. Um, but you need to... That's such an interesting perspective. Yeah, Matt, I totally agree. There's something, you know, about storytelling that like it it finds its way into a medium mm -hmm. and then it kind of exists in that medium and it can be really hard to reshape it at right. that point so if it becomes a fireside tale right. it's probably going to stay that yeah. or if it becomes you know whatever it becomes it, 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 that's what it's decided to you know and, and i'm not being spiritual <laughs> about this per se but but it, that's sort of what it's become now yeah. and i think you know if you have a great idea for a story you know if you have a writing partner or something that's different right. but but right. i think you know, to then take that story and go, well, before I write, you know, my outline or whatever, I'm going to bounce it off this, 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 and this person and see what they all think just to make sure it's a good idea. 
Don't for do sure. it. For sure. Because the more, <laughs> the more often you start telling it, the less of that push and urge you have to go and write it at the end of the day. That's and like right. for me too, like we were talking about like process and everything. I mean, my process has drastically changed the past five years um, than it was 10 years ago. Because right, I like my wife and I, we've got two kids at home. Uh, we've got a newborn now <laughs> and we've got a five-year-old and that five-year-old for a long time had night terrors and uh, eczema. So he wasn't you know, sleeping very well. The time that I got to work and be in front of a computer, you know, the one thing I, I always hear from my friends is like, you know, oh, if you have kids, your your creativity days are over. You're never going to work again. You're, you're not right. going to have time. Yeah. You're going to be too tired. Yeah. I, personally, and I, I, I assume it's different for everybody. I feel like having kids helps me focus it because right. now I have times where I know I have to work. And I want to work. Yeah. I want to do those things. I want to write. So I really make use of it, even if I don't feel like it, even if I'm tired or whatever. And I, and I force yeah. myself to do it, right? Whereas before, when I was on my own, and I had all the time in the world to be creative, I didn't make the same kind of moves in my career because I would go out. You know, you, you, I, yeah, I've got all the time in the world. I'm yeah. going to go for a beer and, and talk about my movie that I'm going to write with my friend over a pint. Yeah. Well, then I'd yeah. go home and I wouldn't write it, you know? Whereas now it's like, <laughs> no, there's, there's yeah. kids, there's time to write. So I write then and it keeps you more focused, right? I can only imagine. I have a dog. I don't have children. I have a dog and a husband. Yeah. And I sit there sometimes and go, okay, I have yeah. this amount of time today to do these amount of yeah. things. And I also need to make sure I have space for my yes. family. Like, which means that when I sit down and I have this window, I better fucking use right. it. You know what right. I mean? And so you don't have that luxury of going, well, I'll percolate on this brilliant idea for a few weeks before I put pen and to paper. And no, it's not happening, honey. Get also, to work. that idea <laughs> of, you know, having a partner, having people that depend on you, um, that makes a really big difference for how you approach your work yes, and how you value yeah. your work. Because you're, you're now, like for me, with, with two kids and a wife, I'm not going and saying, yeah, I can do this poster for $50 and spend a month on it. You know, I, I'm saying, no, no, I have to now, I'll do this poster if it's going to take a month, it's got to pay my bills for a month and support two yeah, kids and, yeah. you know, make sure that yeah. it keeps the lights on. Um, and that's the hard part. And if, if they, they can't pay that, then you have to pass, which, and that's the hard mm -hmm. part is, you know, the, a few years ago I was offered, um, from a trading card company, a licensed job to work on the X-Files. And that was just a dream, a dream project. For, I, I love the X-Files. I've loved the X-Files since I was a kid. I mean, uh, and then we, we had like a time frame. It was all good. And we started discussing rate and the rate, you know, again, we're not going to talk about the company, but the rate was incredibly low. I mean, I don't think I could have kept the lights on for 24 hours, let alone a month. You know, it was very low. And I knew <laughs> going into it, I think they wanted like 48, you know, hand painted trading cards or something. And I'm like, no, there's, there's just no way. And passing on that was like one of the hardest things I'd ever had to do. But, yeah. you know, when it's your job, when it is your like your nine to five, you have to. So, you know, I, this business is interesting too. like I, I mean, on an independent level, like I, I show business in the studio levels is a different thing, yeah. of course, because money is the thing that, that, that changes this. But, you know, I know like in the independent world, like there's a lot of bartering using favors and yeah. things like that, you know, and the amount of times like people that have come to me and said, you know, will you help with me give notes on this or can you come up for a day? We're having trouble. Like, if, you know, I'm whatever. Yeah. And, and you want to help people you do and you want because people helped you and you, you try not to 
to forget that, right? Like that's always something for me is I'm always mindful of how much help I got from, from a lot of really talented people. Whereas you said, you know, you might not be where you are if you hadn't Definitely. had that support. Yeah. <clears throat> but it becomes very difficult sometimes to figure out how to do that. You're like, you have to look at it and be like, if in helping this person, am I going to create a situation where it's going to hinder me somehow and not make me, uh, you know, created enough income to pay these bills or whatever, mm. you know, for you, like when you, you know, I'm sure you've been in this position, you know, where someone that you like or that you admire has come and say, can you help me out with this? You know, how do you sort of approach that in, in, in your work as a writer and as, as an artist, just in terms of like, you know, that pay it forward kind of approach? Yeah, that is where it's very hard, right? Because um, I, my, my nature as well, it's like, I'm not, I want to live comfortably, but I don't really care about money. <laughs> and that's the, that's the right. biggest problem. And I find that that happens. I think Steve Kostansky described you as being like one of the nicest people that works in movies. <laughs> well, that is, that is very flattering. Yeah. Uh, that, well, yeah. um, I want to work on everything because I love, I do love movies and I do love this industry. And I, I have uh, thankfully uh, not had an experience. Even the bad experiences were not bad enough to make me hate it or to want to do something else. I still think it's a very magical industry, even though there is a, a dark side to it. Um, but there's a dark underbelly to every industry. You know, I just think that if you, if so. you are working, you're likely working for somebody and somebody along the way is getting, you know, exploited to a certain degree, you know, and it really then becomes a question of to what degree are you willing to allow yourself to become exploited? Um, so, so long as <laughs> comfortable exploitation yeah you know right. unfortunately yeah. unfortunately right because we should all be working for what we're worth and uh that doesn't always happen you know so you have to just mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of factors that are like that you have to weigh in there it's like can can you afford the time is the money good enough do you love the project you know blah 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 so you're always kind of balancing all of these things all at once but yeah, I mean, I, I do get asked a lot to do either art or music or work on a script or this or that. And it's hard because and it's, and it's even harder now with, uh, again, with kids at home, not to not to use the kids yeah. as an excuse. But the amount of time that I had before has now been cut down to, you know, maybe in drastically, drastically I would right? imagine. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. funny because I remember um, when I was working with uh, Steve and I was storyboarding Leprechaun. That was actually at a time, uh, I think it was 2017, uh, I was working my final day job at that point. I was working that creative director job. And I would go into the office from like 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'd come home at 7 o'clock at night. I was in the office for like 12 hours a day. And I remember, this was a period of like three or four months, I would get a pack of M&Ms and a vitamin water, <laughs> and I would eat that for dinner, and then I would take a two-hour nap. And then I would get up and I would start storyboarding the next scenes for him. And I'd work like through a lot of the night and then I'd get a few more hours sleep and then I'd, I'd do that. I was alone at that point. I mean, this is years and years ago. I didn't, you know, there, there were no kids and I didn't have a, a partner at that time. Um, so I could do that. And I did it because I loved it and because I wanted to. And it, it, but you can't always say yes to everything. You know what I mean? You just can't. So you really have to factor in like, is it something you believe in? Do you want to work with this person? Is it a dream job? Is it, you know, you're sort of going down this checklist and you have to be okay with saying no. And you have to know mm -hmm. that if this person really is your friend, they'll value you enough, ideally, to understand if you can't do it or to, you know, pay you what you're worth or, or value your time and your expertise. So it's... Um, 
Yeah. So it becomes sort of a communication thing at that point. Let's talk about, yes, you know, what, sure, what, sure. what the limitations are, or what I can or can't yeah. do, or if I can't do it. Well, you know, like I, I do book covers every now and then for a friend of mine. And it's sort of this understanding that, yeah, he's not paying me what I might get paid if I'm doing work for Warner Brothers, you know, mm-hmm. but he doesn't care when the work gets done. You know, it's always sort of like, yeah, right. you know, we, we've been friends for like, you know, 15 years. And it's like, you've got that, you've got a, a year of, of, a, of a buffer, you know, just work, chip away at right. it when you can, you know, sort of deal. Yeah. And, and I'm happy to do that because, you know, we get to work on something together and he, uh, you know, isn't looking over my shoulder wondering where the next, you know, revision is. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, a, a, a very prominent filmmaker once said to me, um, I asked him why he was helping me on something. And he said, well, I have sort of a policy at this stage in my life. If, if I like someone and I, and I can do it, I'll help right. them. Because I've had to spend a lot of my career over the last while working with assholes that I didn't like. So now if I can, I'll choose to work with people I like. And that's part of the incentive. Yeah. And I've kind of thought of that, how logical that is, though. Because you so often work on something, you know. And now it's a bit different, of course, when you're painting because you're primarily working on your own but i'm talking about like when you're working collaboratively with people a lot of the time like you know you hope that you'll like the people you're working with but that's not always the case and you have to forge ahead and do your job yeah and Um, and definitely uh, as well like i remember one of the first things i ever ever heard about the industry was like film people like to work with the same people over and over again, if they have a good rapport with them, even if you are not the greatest, even if there is somebody more knowledgeable or more experienced or whatever, but who is an absolute nightmare to work with, you're, you're going to solidify your place in, in the industry by being a good person, you know, just, just be decent, you know, be respectful, be, have a good response time, answer your emails, be, be courteous, be graceful, whatever. And I think that, a lot of people don't realize how far that goes, you know, be talented, you know, be good at what you do, be consistent, whatever, but also just like be easy to work with, you know, be Be nice. nice. Why is that? So like (laughs) it's 2022. Why are we still, you know, working with jerks, (laughs) you know, like it's crazy. I, I, you know, it's, isn't it nice to see though, that kind of idea of the asshole RTs dying? Cause I always hated that bullshit. The, the idea of, well, he's a total nightmare, but the craft, I'm like, fuck yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to show up and be such a dick, but but the idea is that you're so talented that you're allowed to do it. I've always thought, I'm like, that's how unfair is that to everyone else around you who you're impeding, who you're interfering with because of your process? Sure. You know what I mean? Like, And I, I like that that's, I think that that attitude is starting to be frowned upon. Agreed, and I think that's agreed. And, and look, that attitude was only allowed to flourish because people allowed it you know, because people right. indulged yeah. it. And, you know, it, it's just weird to me that some people are are not given that kind of understanding or grace, right? It's like the expectation is, is way different for some people than it is for others. And it shouldn't be. We, we're all we're all people. We're all humans, you know? Like, let's just get along. Let's be good to each other. Let's be excellent to Easy each other. for you to say you're the nicest guy in show business. That's really funny. I mean, I'm going to have to talk to him about that. Because <laughs> I think that he's actually a, a, a great guy. I mean, he's he's definitely one of the well, easiest think, people to talk to and approach ever so that's very nice it's easy to see why you guys work well <laughs> it is yeah cool. it is i mean and i think it's cool you know you look at sort of steve kostansky who's a filmmaker with a background working with a lot of the same people and you've become sort of part of his stable of people he likes to work mm-hmm. with but there is a great thing about working with the same people and one it can be very economic because you develop this shorthand exactly. with each other where you can say remember that thing we did i want yep. one of those rather than having to do a 10 minute conversation about what that yep. thing is 
You know what I mean? Um, you know, particularly for me, like some of the actors I've worked with that I've worked with, with multiple times where I can just like, we speak in like another language to people who are new to the set. Cause we're talking all about on things we've done before. Right, right. Remember on this one, we did that. We want to do that here. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know I mean, there's that. And, but also that trust, right? It's like, I know this person, I know they have, they want to make the, they want to do the best job they can here. And I want to do that. You know, we're going to do that together. Right. Um, you know, I think that sense of family on a film set is a unique thing that film has, you know, Actors in particular talk a lot about how they go into a movie and for, you know, six weeks or whatever, you, you've got this family and you're so close and then it's over and you move on and you do other mm, things. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's nice when there's some mainstays, you know, in your work and and people that, that sort of, you know, you come back around and you keep doing stuff together. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's I think that that's vital for for filmmakers where so much changes to have a few things in place few people in place that you know are there and in your corner and stuff like totally. that you know yeah, it's yeah. like um it can be you know i'm curious too like you you've got guys like steve kostansky that you've collaborated with um uh you, you have a writing part you said as well I do right? yeah um elijah uh so he um he's one of the I, I would say honestly he's also extremely nice nicest guy ever um i met him back in 2013 uh he initially was he he liked my artwork and i think he collected a couple yeah. pieces of comic art that i did and put up for sale um but we we stayed friends because i he, he was a nice guy um we liked a lot of you know similar movies and stuff like that he went on to uh work for like fangoria and i think like birth movies death like a bunch of online places he was reviewing and uh then he moved, I think, to Thailand for a year or two and became a fighter. <laughs> and then he you know, became what? a fighter. Like, he became a, a straight... He's oh, like wow. Batman, basically. Like, he he went off, he, oh, he learned okay. uh, boxing and mixed martial arts and well, all now that. Now I can see why you made this person your writing partner. He My came God. back, uh, and then he was living in uh, Denver prior to Thailand. And then he moved back to um, Los Angeles, where he became friends with Macaulay Culkin and uh, worked as Macaulay Culkin's, I believe, director of merchandise for Bunny Ears when Macaulay Culkin had that, you know, side project. And Elijah brought me on to do artwork for, for Mac. So I did some, some stuff for, for him and uh, yeah, we just, we just stayed friends. And then let's see, what, what was it? It was a couple of years ago. I, went down to Los Angeles and met Elijah in person for the first time. It was a great time. Okay. Like we, you know, uh, just hung out for the weekend. He, uh, was co-hosting a Halloween party, uh, met a bunch of people. We went to go see Patton Oswalt. We had lunch with Macaulay Culkin and it was just like, it was a, a great trip. Um, and then about half a year later, I had an opportunity to, do some writing. Um, I was contacted by somebody from a, a, a big studio and uh, I had a bunch of deadlines and I realized like I was kind of biting off more than I could chew. And I was like, I don't think yeah. I can get an entire TV pilot and pitch deck done in the amount of time they want. And so out of the blue contacted Elijah because I knew that he was a writer as well. And we, we clicked like right away. Um, so we've been writing ever since we've, we've hammered out like four or five different, tv shows and a bunch of features and we're just uh we've got something that was optioned recently so we're just uh just you know chipping away at it but no he's a great guy yeah that's great so tell me what what's uh 
What's on the horizon? What are you working on now? What's next for you? Lots more art. I'm booked pretty much straightforward until uh, Christmas time, like until the until winter. So that's good. That's always good for freelancers, you know, to have that much booked in advance. Um, cool. Some cool projects too. We're I'm doing some paintings that are going to be animated in a big uh, grindhouse movie documentary. So those have been f- kind of fun. I've been working on this for a couple months now. Um, a lot more Blu-ray art. I've been given a couple titles that I think I, I can't say what they are yet, but they're definitely like fan favorites. And uh, some of them I think are going to be really, really cool. My last question okay. for you is then, do you still, you know, do you ever paint film stuff just for you? Like just for yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so the, yeah. uh, the Friday the 13th, um, behind you, uh, and, and the Halloween right actually. There. Wait, yeah, there. both, both there. of the Wait. pieces. I was getting confused <laughs> by the way. <laughs> both of the ones that you have anyway. on your wall, uh, were passion projects. Were just for fun. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Even the Halloween, okay. the Halloween one was, uh, uh my f- my first time years ago making a halloween piece at all and since then i've been fortunate to work on licensed halloween material and all that but but back then i was just just doing it because i i loved the film and wanted to put my little you know stamp on it but cuz you i remember when i first saw it i was just like wow like i'm a, i'm i've told you this but i'm kind of a donald pleasant is like a oh, hero yeah. of mine and i was like you know looking at it, I was like, wow, like really Donald is like an actor. Like he's not, he's, you know, there's, there's something about him that's very specific. I think it had a lot to do with right. his eyes, but, but you know, it's, you, you got oh, cool. him, cool. you know, Thank you, you got him. Um, you know, I, I actually have one sure. more question. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard different things from different artists, different painters about what, what the hardest thing to do is when they distill a poster. Right. And some artists have said to me, well, you know, human beings, people are a lot harder to capture than monsters and stuff right. like that because of the way, you know, when we look at a monster, we have a lot of forgiveness because it's not a real thing. We don't know what it would look like. So there's an artistic liberty there that, that you get away with that you might not if you're trying to capture an actor or something where people have a sense of what that should right. look like. But then I've also heard that backgrounds are the hardest, <laughs> that that, an, that a person will paint something and be like, what the fuck do I do with the background now? And, and that that can be a real challenge. Which one of those two things is tougher for you? Um it's not always the same, you know, like, like from project to project, but I I would say that I feel very confident with individual elements. I feel like I can give you a person. I feel like I can give you a car. I can give you a tree. The hard part oftentimes becomes like, how do you combine so many things that shouldn't exist in one poster together? You know what I mean? Like in one image, like you will, you will never have, an actual composition, like, you know, the, I don't know why I'm pointing at my screen, if you're pointing at yours, but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, you're always tricking the eye. You're, you're, you're combining a shot of a, a cabin with a shot of a huge portrait, or you're combining a shot of a right. hand that doesn't belong there. Your, your perspective, your, you know, the, the layout is often the hardest part. And, and there, there oddly times where when you're done the layout, it looks fine. But when you start to fill it in and you add color and you you flesh out the characters, your layouts can sometimes feel a bit weaker. And then all of a sudden you have to kind of reevaluate yeah. and say, okay, well, actually I need an additional element here because now there's too much, you know, white space or, or you know, the sky is actually not blending in well with the portrait that you're supposed to put up right. there. So I think that one of the the biggest things that you have to become okay with is understanding that it is an organic 
kind of process. And that even though you may have a layout that looks perfect and you may have a portrait that looks perfect and whatever, sometimes they just don't go together. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to be willing to make a couple last minute adjustments, right? In order for the composition as a whole to make more sense. Um, uh, yeah, that would be that would be it. I think it's I think it's more a challenge of going from the initial design idea to the fully rendered piece. And that becomes that's the challenge is that whatever magic <laughs> or process happens uh, from start to finish is is trying to just make it look like it's unified, you know, and it all belongs together and works and complements, you know, all the elements are working together. Thank you for uh, all your insights and like for talking to us about, you know, your work and how it comes together. And I think uh, Steve is right. You are one of the nicest people in this mm -hmm. industry. So well, keep that you. up. <laughs> well, th thank you for having me. It, it's honestly been, I don't do a lot of uh, podcasts. I don't do a lot of interviews and I, I, I get a lot of requests for them. Um, but yours came through at a great time too, because yeah. like I've been taking time off on like, you know, paternity leave and my, my art output hasn't been as big as it normally is. Cause I've been home and I just thought, well, this is great. Like it, it gives me time to actually do an interview. And cause I think they're fun. Like, you know, it's, it's great to actually connect with people and art know, is such right? a weird solitary thing. And it's nice to actually have a positive conversation about it and not <laughs> yeah. just read people's comments online, you know, yeah, which are, which are, which like are up and down all the time. You never know what you're going to get. Right. <laughs> oh, thanks, Matt. Cool. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production engineering provided by Jaden Bozon. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, Retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.